Welcome, brave, brave fellow believers to Kingdom Cast. This is Sean. Sorry, I'm getting my studio kind of rigged here uh, so I can get uh, get some things set up. Appreciate you guys joining me tonight. We're doing a, a fun a fun podcast tonight where we're going to kind of dive into Jubilees a little bit and look at it. So I just want to thank you guys for all being here. I want to thank you, everyone, for uh, continuing to want to like jump in and and study the word with me because I'm kind of a word nerd. So I enjoy this and I actually like to know not just the big, the answers to the big questions, but also all the little minute detail questions of my faith. I, I want to know all the answers and be able to explain it, you know, 10 different ways if I have to. So that's, that is why I think, as you saw from the title of the video, that's why I think Jubilees is such a fascinating book. Um, having been in other canons around the world, having been found in the desk amongst the Desi Scrolls next to, you know, Genesis and Leviticus and the book of Enoch and having, you know, just an incredible amount of validity and history. And then what does it actually say? Why, why would people take it seriously? But it explains so much. It's beautiful. So, um, I'm going to jump into it and, uh, just try to keep this, <laughs> under two hours if possible. Also, we'll take your questions. I'm going to take your uh, live calls if you'd like. So you're welcome to do that as well. Just remember, I'm going to kind of go over. I may not take your questions. Like if you're typing a question in the chat, I may not take it while I'm going over some of the slides, but towards the end, I'll be able to take your questions as well. And uh, just wait for it. When that time comes, be sure to put them in all capitalizations so that myself and the moderators can see it easily. And other than that, I hope you guys saw that uh, Lighthouse is still coming. Uh, they're working hard to get everything shored up so that once they do launch, they can't be taken down like other platforms have been. I don't know if you guys heard, but uh, I think it was this guy named uh, Mike, the guy that does the MyPillow. I can't remember his name right now, but he actually tried to launch his own social media, taken down the first day. Uh, just like Parler was taken down after a couple years of success, they got back up, but no one's even talking about Parler anymore. So it's kind of a, even if they let you get back up, it's still a destinance. Uh, so the uh, the developers of Lighthouse are working hard so that they can actually, once they launch, it's launched and they don't have to worry about anyone trying to take them down um, because they're not going to kowtow to specific uh, agendas, specific political agendas, because they're going to be a platform for all people. So as a result of that, they're, they're on their way. They're still doing it. They're just, you know, they had to sure up a lot of things in order for that to happen successfully. So I appreciate everybody's patience with that, as well as you probably saw the uh, the advert at the very beginning there. Just we're, we're still doing the um, the study guide. I do a little bit on it every day, trying to get that that taken care of. And the, the what it's going to take me probably a year or more to actually get all the books that I want to include. Eighty plus books. Um, Jubilees will be one of those books. And right now I've been working on um, Enoch, Genesis, Jubilees, and Romans. Actually, in fact, I might just release Romans here in a couple of days just because that one's already done and I'm still trying to, you know, work on the rest of the other ones and finish those up. But, um, uh, that way people can just have something to sh that I can show them, Hey, you know, here's an entire completed book at this point, but I I'm silly. I tried to tackle like the biggest books first, instead of like just <laughs> spread it out and doing like first Timothy and Genesis or something. I know I just like, yeah, let's do Genesis, Julius and Enoch. They're all like massive, massive books. So, but yeah, that's still happening. That's on our Patreon. If you're interested in that, and um, uh, that way you can actually have access to it early. So that's the only reason we're doing the Patreon, just in case people don't understand, is because 
with Patreon, not only is it going to help me reach my costs, like if, you know, as I get new patrons toward that project, it's going to help me reach my cost to actually uh, get everything that needs to be done, including a finished published version of it. And of course, I, I would love to have enough access to be able to have an app created as well, but that's another cost, right? So that's what the, the Patreon's going towards. It's the $20 family level. If you're interested in having early access to the, the contextual study guide before I get it completed so that you don't have to wait an entire year, you can actually, you know, help me raise funds for the project while actually having early access to the project. And that's at the $20 family level on our, on our Patreon. So everyone that's already a Patreon, we love you. We thank you. Um, you guys are a super blessing. You keep us going and we, we thank you so much. Everyone that has, has donated to us, whether PO box or through PayPal, we also really appreciate you. We love you. Thank you so much for what you're doing and uh, your generosity and your, your kind words and letters. And people have just as another announcement, we, we try to announce this every so often and people write us letters Guys, and I'm, you know, if you're watching this, please do not be offended if I haven't been able to get back to your specific letter. I get, I, we get more questions, letters, emails, messages um, that we can respond to. So I just, I really appreciate you if that you have been one to write that. Uh, you guys want to see? You actually, you guys want to see? This is from the last three months. So this is, um, these are just from the, <laughs> these are uh, just a few on my desk here that I'm going to try to respond to. Um, as soon as possible, but uh, that's that's physical mail. We, we get more than that through digital, you know, social media messages, through the, through personal emails, stuff like that. So, thanks to your love, thanks to your support, patience, your kind words. But please don't be offended if I haven't been able to personally write you back and get back to you like that. And so, um, also, guys, I just wanted to give a, a quick uh, reminder to um, our our sisters campaign. This is uh, let me actually go here real quick so you guys can see this. I want to give a huge thank you to everyone that was supporting or that saw the tour portion last week and you went to support Rihanna's road to recovery. Um, this is a sister that Lindsay and I personally know, and she's, she's just diagnosed with uh, triple negative breast cancer. So I want you guys to please, if you can um, go to her, let me think. This link in the chat right now. Um, that way you guys can go there and and check out this and, and just show her some love, if you will. She's trying to raise a certain amount of money to actually get um, treatment. So this isn't just a personal fundraiser for you know someone that's struggling on bills. We've done those in the past because we found what we felt were qualified people. But this this young lady she has an opportunity to actually get proper treatment uh, for what she was diagnosed with. So if you guys are willing to go check that out and, and pray about whether you want to support her or not, that's her GoFundMe link. It's in the, it's in the live chat as well. So you guys are welcome to go check that out. Let's jump right into it if you will. Okay. One second. Okay. Jubilee chapter one. So here in Jubilee chapter one, <laughs> right off the bat, you have an actual, we have a contextual reference to where this begins, where this actual plate, you know, this, this spot in Jubilees as it opens up the book, where it begins. And so I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to read through the passages and then I'm going to go back to the little inserted points of context. And we're going to read those as well, just to help you kind of better follow what Jubilees is complimenting in the, in the can of CT6 that a lot of people are familiar with. 
So to help you walk through it. Jubilee chapter 1, 1 through 6, it says, came to pass in the first year of the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt in the third month, on the 16th day of the month, that God spoke to Moses and he said, come up to me on the mountain. I'll give you two tablets of stone of the law and of the commandment, which I have written, that you may teach them. And Moses went up into the mountain of God, and the glory of the Lord abode on Mount Sinai, and a cloud overshadowed it six days. And he called to Moses on the seventh day out of the midst of the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a flaming fire on the top of the mount. And then Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. And God taught him the earlier and the latter history of the division of all the days of the law and of the testimony. And he said, Incline your heart to every word which I shall speak to you on this mountain. Write them in a book in order that their transgressions may see how I have not forsaken them, for all the evil which they have wrought in transgressing the covenant which I established between me and you for their generations this day on Mount Sinai. And thus it will come to pass when all these things come upon them that they will recognize that I have more that I am more righteous than they in all their judgments and in all their actions, and they will recognize that I have tr been truly with them. So isn't this interesting? So just as a quick commentary, Moses is asked to teach what he's about to learn. Um, he's about to get the fullness of the law. They already had a ton of instruction from the law, even about the priesthoods. We're, we see that throughout Genesis. We're going to discuss that a little bit um, as we review this first five chapters of Jubilees. But the, the timing of when this actually takes place, this is actually happening in Exodus 24, 6 through 12. This is the moment where it says, Moses took half of the blood and put it in its bowls, and the other half he sprinkled in the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people who replied, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And guys, I just have to point out real quick, in case you didn't notice, not only did they already know how to build an altar, just like Abraham already knew how to build an altar in Genesis you know, uh, 12 and 22 and 17, but he's he knows how to do the proper instructions of a priest with where he places the blood and how. That means he has already been taught the proper slaughtering of the animal so that it's acceptable to bring forward for the father. That means he got that information from somewhere, and he's about to read where he got that information right here. And this is in uh, verse 8. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on them. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance. I'm sorry, it's verse 7. He said, then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. So, guys, this is before he goes up to the mountain. We're about to read that in verse 9 through 12, where he actually goes up to the mountain, which correlates with Jubilees chapter 1. This is before... He, he, they already have books written down for their instructions that they're passing down to, to learn what right behavior is and to learn the right and proper way how to worship Yahweh. This is why he can go to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7, and he can say to Pharaoh, let, our, let my people go because we want to go worship the Lord our God on the mountain three days journey into the wilderness. Well, there's a definition for that word worship, and that's why Moses and Aaron were of the Levite, the Levitical priesthood that was already established um, way back hundreds of years earlier with the actual son of Jacob called Levi. That's where that name comes from. That's why they were chosen. And this is why Moses and Aaron are understanding what it requires. They can't do this stuff on the land of sacrifice. They can't do what the father's not asking him to do this in the land of Goshen. He wants them to go to specifically Mount Sinai. There's going to be a reason for that. We're going to read about that in Jubilees chapter uh, four, I believe. So stay with us. And he knows the instructions of the priesthood already to a large, large degree. They just don't have the instructions to build a, a tabernacle that's patterned after the one in heaven yet. That's some of the extra instruction they're about to get here on Mount Sinai. But he already has a book with him. This is why earlier it says when, when Yahweh said to Moses, I'm going to, with this generation today, I will establish my covenant between you and me. That word establish doesn't mean brand new. That word establish means he's going to, he's going to establish the, the covenant that day, meaning it's, um, 
it's a it's a word that it, it means he's going to reaffirm. He's going to reestablish it, just like he establishes the same covenant with Noah, with Shem, with Abraham multiple times. Genesis 15, he establishes the covenant. Another time in Genesis 17 with circumcision, he establishes the covenant with Abraham. Um, and this is this happens over and over. Why? Because it's actually we're going to read about that next time in chapter six, that it is yearly reestablished, if you will. It's reaffirmed. It's re renewed every year on Shavuot. So this is why specifically, as we read in Jubilees chapter one on the third, the third month on the 16th day, this is when this moment's happening. It's on Shavuot, guys. So this is a, the father does everything according to his plan as his feasts. And, and this is what we're reading about right here. So he goes into verse uh, seven. He says, you took the book of the covenant. You read to the people who replied, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. That means they already had a book with them. We actually see that way down the road in Jubilee chapter 44, that Joseph gave the books of his fathers to Levi. Levi would then carry those books into the land of Goshen when they all went down there. So this is where they would have these, these instructions of the covenant already. It's that the people, the children of Israel were forgetting this stuff because of their bondage because of what was going on. That's explained to us in Exodus 1 through 9. So as a result, this is what the Father is bringing them out of bondage to reteach them, to relearn. That's why he tells Moses in Jubilees chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to bring you up on the mountain. I'm going to teach you the law and the testimony, and I want you to teach it to Israel. I want you to teach it to them because they needed good teachers. All right. So this is where verse 9 says, Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel under his feet was a work like a pavement made of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Also, guys, don't be fooled here. In verse 10, it says the God of Israel, and that's a translator insertion with a capital G. No one can see Yahweh's face and live. They did not see Yahweh. They did not see the son of the son of Yahweh either. He's not said to be there. It's the angels that are said to be there, according to Acts 7.53, Galatians 3.19, and Hebrews 2.1. A ton of angels were there. And that's what that word God can mean. In addition to the Almighty, in addition to a ruler, it can also be a word for angels. And this is why they would see the angels of God, the Elohim of Israel. And it said, under his feet was a work like a pavement. And I know this is actually inserted. We've got, we've done a whole video on this, guys, as far as the translator insertions on on um, his feet. I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to it. Uh, again, I apologize. I, I didn't really mean to tangent into this concept here. I just wanted to kind of, just in case people are getting a little confused, there you just have to be aware of translator insertions. That's actually one of the bullet points that's going to be in our contextual study guide uh, to hopefully you know, trigger your mind to start digging and realizing, okay, let me go look at the original language. Most of the Bible software that's out there today, you can click on a word and look at the original language. You look at the verse in the original Hebrew or the Greek, and you can see, oh, wait a minute, that, you know, that word is inserted by the translator. That's not actually in there in the original language. We see that in this, in this verse, in verse 10, a lot. Verse 11, he says, but God did not lay his hand on the nobles of Israel. They saw him and they ate and they drank. What are they eating and drinking? Shavuot meal. This is, this is the whole point of why they're there anyway. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here so that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I've written for their instruction. This is the opening parallel to Jubilees chapter one, verses one through six. Okay, guys. Jubilees chapter one, seven through 10. He goes into saying, write for yourself all these words, which I declare unto you this day, for I know their rebellion and their stiff neck before I bring them into the land of which I swore to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob saying unto your seed, will I give a land flowing with milk and honey and they will eat and be satisfied. They will turn to strange gods to gods, which cannot deliver them from none of their tribulation. And this witness shall be heard for a witness against them for they will forget all my commandments, even all that I command them. 
and they will walk after the Gentiles and after their uncleanness and after their shame and will serve their gods. And these will prove unto them an offense and a tribulation and an affliction and a snare. And many will perish and they will be taken captive and will fall into the hands of the enemy because they have forsaken my ordinance and my commandments and the festivals of my covenant and my Sabbaths and my holy place, which I have hallowed for myself in their midst and my tabernacle and my sanctuary, which I have hallowed for myself in the midst of the land that I should set my name upon it, and that it should dwell there. And they will make to themselves high places and groves and graven images, and they will worship each his own graven image so as to go astray. They will sacrifice their children to demons and to all the works of the errors of their hearts. So we actually see this being fulfilled um, in as this, this prophecy that happens. Uh, we're, we also see this prophesied uh, later, not only in Deuteronomy, but also in Leviticus. But this is fulfilled from this prophecy in Jubilees chapter, just in case you're wondering, is Jubilees something that I should take seriously? Well, I mean, how do we test a book that makes a claim, whether it's the words of Yahweh or not? And this isn't just any book making a claim that it's some prophet. This is literally supposed to be the conversation between Moses and the angels of heaven on Mount Sinai. So this would be a really, really important book to take seriously if it's true, right? So what's one of the ways that the Father teaches us that we can test his word? Deuteronomy 13, right? If a prophet has a dream or dream of visions and he tries to tell you something that leads him, leads you astray, or if Deuteronomy 18, he has a prophecy that doesn't come true, don't listen to him, right? He's trying to lead you to a false god. Well, here's a prophecy, makes a, makes a um, this book is making a prophecy. We see it come true later in the history of Israel during the days of Isaiah. So we have Isaiah 65, one through seven. Yahweh says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call my name, I said, here I am, here I am. All day long, I've held out my hand to an obstinate people who walk in the wrong path, who follow their own imaginations, to a people who continually provoke me face to face, sacrificing in the gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. Excuse me. They provoke me to my face, sacrificing in the gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. Okay, guys. Well, that's, that is a practice that we read about in Jubilees. They talk about him. They're talking about sacrificing the groves. That's the same word for gardens. And burning incense to their gods, that is the same thing as burning incense on altars of bricks. This is what they would do to set up an altar to Baal. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can hear that or not. It's the uh, street sweeper that went by. But Verse 4, he says, Sitting among the graves, spending nights in secret places, eating the meat of pigs and polluted broth from their bowls. They say, Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. Behold, it's written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will pay it back into their laps, both for their iniquities and for those of your fathers, says the Lord, because they burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. That would be the high places they built to Baal and Ashtaroth throughout the land of Israel, where they would both burn incense and do rituals. We're going to go over those rituals here in just a minute because it matters. I will measure into their laps full, full payment for their former deeds. So this is Yahweh through the prophet Isaiah addressing the apostasy of the two houses of Israel and how this was leads to them being scattered amongst the nations invaded by the Assyrians and later the Babylonians. This is uh, actually through the prophet Isaiah. We see the prophecy that was spoken in Jubilees. Um, chapter 1, verse 7 through 10 actually comes true. Okay, so Jubilees 1, 11 through 17, he says, I'll send my witnesses to them that I may pray against them, that, excuse me, that I might witness against them. But they will not hear and, excuse me, will slay the witnesses also, and they will persecute those who seek the law. They will abrogate and change everything so as to work evil before my eyes. 
So if you're watching this right now and you're wondering, why is this guy, who's this crazy guy talking about the law in Israel and focusing on Mount Sinai? We're saved in Jesus Christ. Why are he talking about this? I didn't think we we're under the law. Well, look, I want you to look real carefully here. Okay. In Julius chapter one, verse 11, top of the screen, Yahweh says, the people that are in apostasy, the people that turn from him, they will persecute those who seek the law. Now, I'm not saying that there's there's a lot of misguided believers out there in modern churches that have been told God's instructions for discipleship, quote unquote, his law, that it's been done away with and you don't have to follow that anymore. Well, that is a very big piece of misinformation and it's hindering you and getting close to God. So if you then with that misinformation, I don't want to say persecute, but if you scorn and if you treat with ill contempt your fellow brethren, your fellow believer brethren, who is seeking the law of God, which is the Father Yahweh's instructions for right behavior, the same law that Jesus abided in, the same, it's the same behavior that Jesus did, right? So that means if you if you see your fellow brethren who's actually trying to, to do what Jesus did, then and you think that he somehow abandoned the faith, you are very misguided. If you somehow scorn him, mock him, tell him that he's, you know, somehow following this different gospel or that somehow you need to ostracize yourself from him because he's, you know, a Judaizer. You have found yourself in a, under the deception of the enemy. You're misguided. And I would encourage you to actually start studying the fullness of the Bible so you can understand that God's law was given as perfect, eternal. It's not changing. It never goes away. And it's literally the behavior of the father, the son and the angels in heaven. It is the behavior that's promised to you perpetually and permanently at the new at the new resurrection so for anyone who's a modern day believer and disciple of jesus christ if you have been taught that the law of god is bad a burden or has been done away with you have been deceived by bad teachers so i want to encourage you to do further study so here in verse 12 he says i'll hide my face from them i'll deliver them into the hand of the gentiles for captivity and for a prey and for devouring i will remove them from the midst of the land and i will scatter them amongst the gentiles well we actually see this um, this is going to be fulfilled in Leviticus 26, 27 through 33 as well. It's, this also just correlates, not fulfilled, excuse me. It correlates with the same promise of prophecy given by the father in Leviticus 26. He says, but in spite of all this, you do not obey me, but continue to walk in hostility towards me. That means you're doing an opposite behavior of the covenant, opposite of the law of God. Then I will walk in fury against you. And I, even I will punish you sevenfold for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters. We actually see that come true in the days of Isaiah when they're being besieged by the Assyrians. So in verse 30, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars and heap your lifeless bodies on the lifeless remains of your idols. And my soul will despise you. We actually see this happen in the days of man. Was it, was it Saul or David? Tell me in the chat guys, if you remember where, it's either Saul or David where they go and they destroy the, the high place of Baal and they go to the priests. I think it's in first Samuel. I want to say it's like verse first Samuel, like 23, but they destroy the high place of the priests of Baal. And they take the priests themselves and they kill them on the actual altars of Baal to literally, I mean, it literally fulfills this verse here, which is crazy. So verse 31, I will reduce your cities to rubble and lay waste your sanctuaries. I will refuse the sm to smell the pleasing aroma of your sacrifices. And I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who dwell in it will be appalled. But I will scatter you among the nations and will draw the sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities are laid waste. So that perfectly lines up with the same claim, Leviticus, or excuse me, Jubilees 112, 
Verse 13 says, and they will forget all my law, my commandments and all my judgments. And they will go astray as to new moons and Sabbaths and festivals and jubilees and ordinances. And after this, they'll turn. They will turn to me from amongst the Gentiles with all their heart. Now, why would it be from amongst the Gentiles? Because they've been scattered as was promised. They, they transgressed the, the covenant they willfully entered into. The penalty is you don't get to stay in this awesome land. I'm going to scatter you and you have to live in other nations and other lands. Okay. But he says they will, they will turn to me from amongst the Gentiles with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. I will gather them from amongst all the Gentiles and they will seek me so that I shall be found of them. And when they seek me with all their heart, with all their soul, guys, this is an allusion to the resurrection. This is also found in Germany chapter 30 verses one through 10. I didn't have time to put every single parallel with correlation in tonight's presentation. Verse 15, I will disclose them to abounding peace with righteousness, another promise of the resurrection. And I will remove them the plant of uprightness with all my heart and with all my soul. They shall be for a blessing and not for a curse. They shall be the head, not the tail. And I will build my sanctuary in the midst and I will dwell with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people in truth and righteousness. I will not forsake them nor fail them for I am the Lord their God. This is the same promise, guys. The same promise as Ezekiel 37, 25 through 28. And Messenger of the Most High, hey, what's up, brother? I appreciate you. He dropped in the, the verse I was thinking of, Second um, Chronicles 23, 17. All the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down. They broke in pieces his altars and his images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Yeah, so they basically made uh, Jubilees 112, or Jubilees, uh, what was it? Was it 112? They made Jubilees chapter 1 come true. Uh, Ezekiel 37, 25 through 28 is what we just read here, where the Father promises I will... I will resurrect them. I will give them, let them, I will draw them all from the nations where they are. And I will resurrect them, give them a clean heart, abounding peace with righteousness. That means right behavior. And uh, they'll be the head, not the tail. And he will live amongst them. So let's actually read that passage in Ezekiel 37, 25 and 28 it says, they will live in the land that I gave to, to my servant, Jacob, where your fathers lived. They will live there forever with their children and grandchildren. And my servant, David will be their prince forever. This happens at the resurrection guys. And that, by the way, this, my servant, David is an idiomatic phrase for the Kings who would rule over Israel after David, because he was a glorious King in their sight. This is a common practice of all ancient cultures where they would take a prominent uh, King and then subsequent Kings after them, they would name themselves after that King. That's that's, it became like the moniker of that King of that country. Um, so anyway, and that's, that's why they're using that term there um, because Yeshua actually is the one who steps into the place of David's throne. This is what's promised to David. David was not promised to rule forever on his throne, but one of his descendants would. This is what Ezekiel's referring to here in chapter 37. Verse 26 says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. Oh, that sounds familiar. This is just what Jubilees 1 said. It'll be an everlasting covenant. I'll establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary among them forever. That's exactly what Jubilees 1 said. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I'm the, I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is among them forever. Isn't that great? Pretty, pretty amazing. So he goes on in Jubilees, at the end of Jubilees chapter 1, 18 through 23, he says, Moses fell on his face and prayed and said, O Lord my God, do not forsake your people, your inheritance, so that they should wander in the air of their hearts, and do not deliver them into the hands of their enemies, the Gentiles, lest they should rule over them and cause them to sin against you, which is exactly what was happening in Egypt. This is what Moses brought them out of. So Moses is hearing this, and he's like, oh man, this is going to happen. They're still going to transgress down the road, and he's trying to pray for them not to do that, right? 
Verse 19 says, let your mercy, O Lord, be lifted upon your people and create in them an upright spirit and let them not and let not the spirit of Belial rule over them to accuse them before you and to ensnare them from all the paths of righteousness so that they may perish from before your face. So he's literally praying what, what David prayed in Psalm 51, that he would have a, but he's not praying for himself. David prayed for himself, right? David asked that the father would create a, a, a new spirit and an upright spirit in him and create a clean heart in him. Moses is praying this for all the people. Why? Because this is what a good intercessor, a good priest would do. Verse 20 says, but they are your people and your inheritance, which you have delivered with your great power from the hands of the Egyptians, creating them a clean heart and a Holy Spirit. That means a set apart spirit. Let them not be ensnared in their sins from henceforth until eternity. The Lord said back to Moses, I know their contrariness and their thoughts and their stiff nephews, and they will not be obedient until they confess their own sin and the sin of their fathers. And after this, they will turn to me in all uprightness and with all their heart, with all their soul, I will circumcise the foreskin of their heart and the foreskin of their heart of their seed. And I will create in them a Holy Spirit and I will cleanse them so they shall not turn away from me from that day unto eternity. Another resurrection reference here. Also paralleled in Ezekiel 36, 22 and 27. I'll read it just one second. Verse 23, he says, their souls will cleave to me and to all my commandments and they will fulfill my commandments. I will be their father. They shall be my children. It's a beautiful promise, guys. We also see the prophet Ezekiel say the same thing. Verse 23 to 27 says, Therefore tell the house of Israel that this is what the Lord God says. It's not for your sake that I will act, O house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned amongst the nations to which you went. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Now, guys, why is he saying this? In the timeline of events, why is he saying, you profaned my name amongst the nations from which you went? Because he'd already scattered most of them, eight and a half tribes. This is the days of Ezekiel, approximately 100 years after uh, the first moment the Assyrians invaded the, the northern house of Israel and started scattering them. So Ezekiel also is going to go into exile in Babylon, but this is why the father can speak like this in this moment of prophecy to those who had already been scattered. Because even though there were some of them, once they were been scattered, they still didn't repent. They still didn't go back to doing the terms of the covenant, which the father said, if in Leviticus 26, if you're in the land of your, your, uh, where I, where you've been scattered, if you turn to me, I'll take you back. They still did. There's some that still didn't do it. They still kept their ways of the ways of the foreign peoples, the ways of Baal. But there was, there was some faithful remnant that did get scattered and they kept the laws of Yahweh. Even after they were scattered, Tobit's a great example of that. Daniel is a great example of that, right? So Ezekiel, right? Jeremiah, they're also great, great examples of that as well. Unfortunately, because of this, the father's saying, look, I scattered you guys. You still didn't learn your lesson. Now you're profaning my authority, my name amongst the other nations. You're making me look bad. You're, so you're literally still transgressing the covenant. And I told you this was going to happen if you and if you didn't stop worshiping the bells and doing horrible things. Verse 24, he says, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries. I'll bring you back into your own land. I'll also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. So guys, now this is his plan from the beginning. Don't get me wrong, but how interesting is it that Moses prayed this exact thing that the, that the father later through the prophet Ezekiel is saying, I will do this for you. Down the road, we're going to see that Moses gets answered, but this is getting answered again through Ezekiel. It's it's a beautiful thing. The Father's good. So Moses gets answered here at the last part of Jubilees chapter 1. It says, They all shall be called children of the living God, and every angel and every spirit shall know, yea, they shall know that these are my children, that I'm their father in uprightness and righteousness, and that I love them. 
Well, guys, this is amazing because this is actually John chapter one, verse 10 through 13. He says, Yeshua, he was in the world and through the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and he did not, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, that means his authority, he's given the priestly authority, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor of the desire or will of man, but born of God. When are you born of God? At the resurrection. That's why it says in this passage here, he gives the right to become. A lot of people like to say, well, oh, you know, once I believe in Jesus, if I believe in his name, I'm a child of God now. You can believe that all you want, and that's wonderful. I believe, yes, hallelujah, I'm a child of God. My wife's a daughter of God. We walk in that idea. That's wonderful. We believe in that because we try to strive to do his behavior. So therefore, we can be called sons and daughters of God. We, wonderful. But literally, you're still born of a woman. You're not born of God yet. Inwardly, you've had a moment of conversion. You get the deposit of the spirit. You don't have the fullness thereof yet. You get the fullness thereof when you get your new body and you're actually born of God. In those moments in Ezekiel 36 and 37, we just read <laughs> where he brings you from the nations to himself, puts a new spirit, a new upright heart in you. So this is this is also what's being referenced here in John chapter 1, 10 to 13. When you actually fully and forever become a child of God who is born by God's spirit, Isaiah 26, 19 through 21, and you're not born of a woman. Okay, so there's a difference there it's with the idea of a conversion and calling yourself a child of God because you're practicing his behavior versus literally being resurrected and born anew of God. Right. So this is uh that's, you know, kind of a small, beautiful breakdown here. But verse 25 of Jubilees 1, he goes, and write down for yourself all these words, which I declare to you on this mountain, the first, the last, which shall come to pass in all the divisions of the days and the law and the testimony and in the weeks and the Jubilees unto eternity until I descend and dwell with them throughout eternity. And he said to the angel of the presence, write for Moses from the beginning of creation until my sanctuary has been built among them for all eternity. And when the, and the Lord will appear to the eyes of all, and all shall know that I am the God of Israel, the father of all the children of Jacob, and king on Mount Zion for all eternity. And Zion and Jerusalem shall be holy, and the angel of the presence who went before the camp of Israel took the tables of the divisions of the years from the time of the creation of the law and of the testimony of the weeks of the Jubilees, according to the individual years, according to all the numbers of the Jubilees, according to all the individual years, from the day of the new creation, when the heavens and the earth shall be renewed, and all their creation according to the powers of the heaven, that's the firmaments, and according to all the creation of the earth, until the sanctuary of the Lord shall be made in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, and all the luminaries be renewed for their healing, and for peace, and for blessing, for all the elect of Israel, and that thus it may be from that day until all the days of the earth. So guys, this is this is this is the father saying, look, I'm going to come down and dwell with him, just like he promised Ezekiel 37. We see that actually fulfilled in Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Just like the writer of you know, Moses, hearing this, talking through the angels, getting this message in Jubilees chapter 1, verse 28, talks about the new heaven, new earth. That's renewed heaven and new earth. That's why it talks about the stars being, the luminaries being healed. I've got a, I've done an entire video on this. If you guys want to check it out on my main channel, Kingdom in Context, it's called New Heaven and New Earth. You're welcome to go check that out. And I go over this passage right here that I'm about to share with you in great depth and great detail using the Greek. This word new in verse 1 in Revelation 21, 1 is a word kainos, which in the Greek can be used for renewed, which is what actually happens because it's not, it's it's the layer of the firmament that's rolled back like a scroll when Yeshua returns with the angels on the day of the Lord that has to be renewed, has to be refashioned, which is what that Greek word means. Same thing for the earth. The earth is the new Jerusalem. The, the word earth just means a piece of land. And that's what he sees coming down out of heaven, which the context tells you about. 
that new Jerusalem has to be renewed. It's currently being renewed right now because it used to be the Garden of Eden. It's been withdrawn from the earth. It's now being renewed to re be returned as the new Jerusalem. It's going to be made bigger, larger to accommodate everyone that takes part in the first resurrection. All the people that Yahweh already talked about gathering from the nations, it's going to be a lot of people. So he's going to gather them back to the garden. He has to make the garden bigger, right? So this is why now it comes down out of heaven a new refashioned heaven and a new piece of land coming down. Verse one, then I saw new heaven, new earth for the first heaven and earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Okay. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what we just read in Jubilees 1. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he told me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. The one who overcomes will inherit all things and I will be his God and he will be my son. There it is, right? You want to, you want to be his son? Or his daughter, there it is, right? The one who overcomes, that's what Yeshua said, right? In Revelation 2, 25 to 28, he who overcomes, I give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and, and was able to sit with my father on his throne. That's the same promise that Yeshua received. We also can receive to be made a son and daughter of God at the resurrection. Okay, so Jubilee chapter 2. And the angel of the presence spoke to Moses, according to the word of the Lord, saying, Write the complete history of the creation, how in six days the Lord God finished all his works and all that he created and kept Sabbath on the seventh day and hallowed it for all ages and appointed it as a sign for all his works. Guys, this is in Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3. I'm actually not going to read this one for the sake of time. I think most people that are watching this at this point, you've read Genesis 2, 1 through 3. If you haven't, there's your reference, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Same thing as Jubilees 2, 1. Verse two, for on the first day, he created the heavens, which are above and the earth and the waters and all the spirits were served before him. So say so what, what did he do? What happened on, on day one? On the first day, he created the heavens, which are above and the earth and the waters and all the spirits were served before him. On the first day, he created the heavens, plural, which are above and the earth. Well, that's interesting. Isn't that exactly what it says in Genesis 1, 1 where he says in the beginning, God created the heavens, plural and the earth. There's six layers of heavens he created on the day one. And on day two, he creates the seventh final layer that encapsulates where we live. All right. So this is the same promise in Jubilees. The same. He talks about the different types of angels he makes, um, which he had prepared in the knowledge of his heart. So this is all done with forethought. Verse three says, and thereupon we saw his works and praised him and lauded before him on account of all his works for seven great works. Did he create on the first day? Who's the we talking right here in verse three? Well, this is exactly who Stephen's talking about in Acts 7.53, who Paul's talking about in Galatians 3.19 and the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.1, the angels who ordained and mediated the law on Sinai to Moses. This is the conversation happening in this book of Jubilees. Moses is getting told the history of a law where it came from and the creation past, present, and future by angels. They're taking the time to explain to him all the details of the covenant with all the details that, he, that are needed. That's why this book is so important to understand all the aspects of your faith. It's a very, very awesome book, but this is, but we see this angel, this angel saying, we saw his works on day one. Cause he just, in verse two, he says, we were one of the things that was created on day one, along with the other six layers of the firmament, 
and the earth, which was unformed, and the water, by the way, all those waters in Genesis 1-2, the spirit hovered over the waters of the deep, and the earth was unformed, right? So those three, those ideas, the six heavens, the earth, and the water, all that, all that was happening on day one, plus the angels were made on day one. So here's the angel saying, yeah, so we saw him make the rest of it. It says, thereupon we saw his works, we praised him, and lauded before him on account of all his works, for seven great works did he create on the first day. Isn't that interesting? So then he goes on in verse uh, Job 38, 4-7. This is the correlation to what this angel is claiming to Moses. Job 38, 4-7 says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who fixed its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its foundations set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Do you guys know that the sons of God are called the angels often they're literally direct creations of god that's why they're referenced as sons of god and this there it's all this of the same thing in job, uh, job chapter one and two they are the sons of god this is why they're already created so then by the time we get to the point of filling out the foundations of the earth and the measurements of the earth and all that stretch the measuring line across it meaning like they're actually he's actually forming the earth that we see from day two through day six this is the angels had to witness that they get to witness that this is what Jubilees is referencing in uh, Jubilees chapter one, verse three, chapter two, verse three. Last thing on verse four, he says, the second day he created the firmament in the midst of the waters. That's the one directly above us, the one that encloses where we live. And the waters were divided on that day. Half of them went up above. That means above the firmament. That's where those waters are no longer there in Revelation 21, one and two, where it says there was no more sea. And then the other half of them went down below the firmament that was in the midst over the face of the whole earth. And this was the only work God created in the second day. Jubilees chapter 2, 5 through 11, he says, And on the third day he commanded the waters to pass from off the face of the whole earth into one place and the dry land to appear. The waters did so as he commanded them, and they retired from off the face of the earth into one place outside this firmament, and the dry land appeared. Why? Because there are waters outside the firmament where we live. So it's this is, to me, this is why there's a sea outside the firmament where we live. We're enclosed in water, if you will. And this is where he's just, I don't know, I don't know the the plumbing term if you will but yes this water would drain outside of the firmament if he's pulling it off the dry land verse 7 says on that day he created for them all the seas according to their separate gathering places and all the rivers and the gatherings of the waters and the mountains and all the earth and all the lakes and all the dew of the earth and the seed which is sown and all sprouting things and fruit bearing trees and the trees of the wood and the garden of eden keep in mind that guys he created the garden of eden on day three in eden and all plants after their kind so this is where we actually see, in case you ever wondered when this took place in the storyline, since Genesis 2 kind of, Genesis 1 just goes over a whole bunch of information, and Genesis 2 just kind of jumps back in and starts focusing on certain details to explain it to you. Genesis 2, 8, 9, talking about the garden, that happened on day 3. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he placed the man he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God gave growth to every tree that's pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So this is why we have Jubilees talking about that on day three. Verse eight, these four works God created on the third day. And on the fourth day, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon all the earth and to rule over the day and the night, divide the light from the darkness. That's Genesis 1, 14 through 19. God appointed the sun to be a great sign on the earth for days and for Sabbaths and for months and for feasts and for years and for Sabbath of years and for all Jubilees and for all seasons of the years. It divides the light from the darkness and for prosperity. 
that all things may prosper which shoot and grow on the earth. These three kinds he made on the fourth day. And on the fifth day he created great sea monsters and the depths of the waters. For these were the first things of flesh that were created by his hand, the fish and everything that moves in the waters, everything that flies, the birds and all their kind. 12 through 19 in Jubilees 2, the sun rose above them to prosper them. And above everything that was on the earth, everything that shoots out of the earth, all the fruit-bearing trees and all flesh. These three kinds he created on the fifth day. And on the sixth day, he created all the animals of the earth and all the cattle and everything that moves on the earth. And after this, excuse me, after all this, he created man, a man and a woman created he them. He gave them dominion over all that is upon the earth and in the seas and over everything that flies and over every beast and every cattle, over everything that moves on the earth and over the whole earth. Over all this, he gave him dominion. These four kinds he created on the sixth day, and they were altogether two and 22 kinds. Excuse me, two and 20 kinds. That's 22 total. And he finished all his work on the sixth day, all that is in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and the abysses and in the light and in the darkness and everything. And he gave us a great sign. And the Sabbath day that we should work six days, but keep Sabbath on the seventh day from all work. And all the angels of the presence, all the angels of sanctification, these two great classes, he instructed us to keep the Sabbath with him in heaven and on earth. Think about that, guys. To keep the Sabbath with him in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? To keep the Sabbath with him in heaven and on earth. Well, guys, do you realize there was angels of the presence and angels of sanctification were in the garden helping Adam and Eve on the earth. Teaching them right behavior. So we also see this same principle that this idea of the Sabbath being part of the covenant. We're going to it, he goes on to express here in just a minute. It's an actual sign of the covenant. The angels are absolutely in covenant with God. They keep the same sign of the covenant that mankind does. So Matthew six nine through ten. This is why Yeshua would pray this. So then, this is how you should pray: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's your authority. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Same law, same law for heaven, same law for earth. Angels keep the same thing that's instructed to you. They're also sons of God. This is why Yeshua would teach us to pray like this. Verse 19, and he said to us, behold, I will separate myself a people from among all the peoples, and these shall keep the Sabbath day. And I will sanctify them unto myself as my people, and I will bless them. Guys, you realize what I'm reading here? This is the angel telling Moses, this is what the Creator told us one day about you guys. Like this is this is a conversation being repeated by an angel to Moses about what the Creator told all the angels. So Father announces what he's gonna do to his servants, right? Verse 19, Yahweh said to the angels, Behold, I'll separate myself a people from among all the peoples, and these shall keep the Sabbath day. And I will separate, I will sanctify them unto myself as my people, and I will bless them. As I have sanctified the Sabbath day, and do sanctify it to myself, even so will I bless them. And they shall be my people, and I'll be their God. So he's telling the angels what he's going to do with mankind, what he wants to do with mankind. 23, 26 in Jubilee chapter 2, he says, I've chosen the seed of Jacob from amongst all that I've seen and have written him down as my firstborn son. And I've sanctified him unto myself forever and ever. I will teach them the Sabbath day that they may keep Sabbath thereon from all their work. Well, guys, if you're not born of Jacob, what happens? Can you, can you, 
still keep the Sabbath 100%. This is how you get grafted in. This is why we're told later in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there is one law for all peoples. One law. So if you're going to go be a part of Israel, you get grafted in because you do the same behavior of covenant as Israel. A sign of that you're actually in a covenant with the Creator and that you are a part of Israel is that you would take a day off once a week. And by the way, the feast days that happen throughout the year in the calendar are also called Sabbaths. So yeah, you would you would take a day off and you're going to take these other days off. You actually get a full month off if you add it up throughout the year. That's the sign. That's the that's the non-burdensome sign that you're actually in a relationship with the Father, with the Creator, is that you take, you basically, as an aggregate, it would be an entire month that you get off of work. That he says, hey, you don't have to work in these days. In fact, just relax and focus on me. Eat, drink, relax, enjoy, right? This is what he's saying. Look, this is what I want to do with people that are in Israel. This is what the angels do. Verse 21, thus he created there in a sign in accordance which with they should keep Sabbath with us on the seventh day. With us, they should keep Sabbath. He created the Father. Yahweh created in in accordance with, excuse me, I'm saying this wrong. And thus Yahweh created therein a sign in accordance with which they should keep Sabbath with us, that's the angels, on the seventh day to eat and to drink and to bless him who has created all things as he has blessed and sanctified to himself a peculiar people above all peoples and that they should keep Sabbath together with us. So guys, when you're practicing the Sabbath, when you're just taking a day off for work and you're resting, you're having you know just wonderful fellowship meal with family focused on the Father, that's kind of the idea of it. It's that simple. He's doing that in heaven as well. Isn't that amazing? The angels and the, and the creator, they're doing the same thing. You actually can do their behavior. It's not burdensome. It's not. Just like they... They don't kill or they don't murder. Uh, they don't lie. They, you know, just like they would do all the other instructions of the covenant that apply to them. This is one that everyone can do that applies to everyone that wants to be in covenant with the creator. And it doesn't require anything whatsoever. It just requires you to remember to relax, focus on him, make sure you don't work for profit. You know, just it's that it's so amazing. Like of all the religions on earth, nobody, nobody. No, none of the other false gods on earth through their false teachings ever told anybody, Hey, if you want to be, if you want to be in covenant with me, you want to worship me, just take a day off, relax with me like that. This is, this is too easy. Like this is the father literally just wanted us to be, you know, to be joyful, you know, while we, while we have relationship with him. So guys, uh, I see your questions. Just remember, I'm, I'm trying to get through these slides um, as fast as I can here. Um, I know that a lot of people have questions. I'm going to do a Q&A at the end of this. So please bear with me. Stay with me. Um, you may have to repeat your question because the chat that I get to see, it doesn't have the entire history from when I started the broadcast. It only has so much. So I don't always see the questions you may ask at the first of the broadcast once I get to the Q&A at the end. So please keep that in mind and be ready to copy paste. Maybe have that question ready to, to ask again once we get to the, to the Q&A. Okay, guys. So he goes on to say, verse 21 or verse 22, he caused his commands to ascend as a sweet savor acceptable before him all the days. What does that mean? This is exactly, we're talking about the Sabbath, right? He causes to man, his command, when after the, the same context, he's talking about the Sabbath. And then he says, he caused his command to ascend before him as a sweet savor all the days, all the days. Numbers 28, 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites and say to them, See that you present to me at its appointed time the food for my offerings by fire as a pleasing aroma to me. That's the sweet savor that ascends. 
and tell them that this is the offering made by fire you are to present to the Lord as a regular burnt offering each day. That's all the days. Two unblemished-year-old males one one offer uh, offer one lamb in the morning and the other at twilight. Along with the tenth of an ephah, fine flowers, a grain offering mixed with a quarter hint of oil from pressed olives. This is the regular burnt offering established at Mount Sinai as a pleasing aroma, an offering made by fire to Yahweh, to the Lord. So the daily offering is instructed in Jubilees, chapter 2, verse 22. And it's assumed that you're going to know how to do the daily offering, which causes the sweet savor of aroma to ascend. And it's, you know, how beautiful. It's also, there's also a Sabbath offering that's done on the Sabbath, right? So this is talking to a priest. This is the angels expressing to a priest. That means Moses already knows how to do this stuff. In fact, they already did this stuff in, in Exodus 18 and also Exodus 24 and Exodus 19. So, I mean, he's, Moses has already exemplified. He knows how to do the priestly requirements of, of, of altar sacrifice and creating a meal with a sweet savor ascending to heaven. I mean, he already knows this, and this is why the angels are extracting this as well daily. Verse 23, there were two and 20 heads of mankind from Adam to Jacob. Two and 20 kinds of work were made until the seventh day, that is, blessed and holy. And the former also is blessed and holy, and this one serves with that one for sanctification and blessing. So basically saying that the six days of creation and the um, that that leads to, it's it's kind of a unique way of saying this, just the idea that that both serve each other. So the six days leads to the Sabbath. The six days you would prepare to rest on the Sabbath because you're, you're honoring God. Six days a man should work, right? If he doesn't, he shouldn't eat. And then the seventh day you take a rest. So they work in conjunction together for sanctification and blessing, right? Sanctification is something that you're doing the commandments of God actively to draw closer to him. The blessing is the day of rest, right? Where it's also a commandment. It's also part of sanctification, but you just don't have to, you're just resting that day. It's kind of like a, a day that you try to maybe uh, create a little, uh, I don't want to say that word. Um, you're creating a special environment, if you will, because you've, you've been out amongst the world. You've been <laughs> having to deal with business, having to deal with people trying to steal money from you, having to deal with employees, having to deal with all kinds of things. And you have to keep the commandments through those too, right? So that means you got to be conscientious as you're working and do the behavior of the Lord and you're tested, you're tried throughout that time. But the seventh day, he just wants you to create an environment where you don't have to worry about all that. You can just rest in him and still obey him at the same time. So that's why they work together for sanctification and blessing. Verse 24, and to this Jacob and his seed, it was granted that they should always be the blessed and holy ones of the first testimony of the law, even as he sanctified and blessed the Sabbath day on the seventh day. He created heaven and earth and everything that he created in six days. God made the seventh day set apart. He made it holy for all his works thereof. He commanded on its behalf, on this, on behalf of the seventh day, Yahweh commanded that whoever does any work thereon shall die, and that he who defiles it shall surely die. Now, guys, if you just like with all the commands, if you break a command, there's forgiveness through the priesthood. This is, this is the, why the Father gave you a priesthood. He knows you're going to have to practice these, which means in the beginning you're not going to be good at them. This is why you have a priesthood for when you mess up. Even, yes, even intentional sins. There's a difference in an outward defiance where you blaspheme the Lord because you reject his covenant, but yet you're still trying to get the benefits of his covenant. That's one that reserves capital punishment. But this, I mean, this is what he's excuse me, alluding to in this concept of that those who are breaking this sign of this covenant, that means you don't want to be in covenant. But does that mean that the father can just say that if you try to get in covenant and try to leave, that he's going to kill you? In this earthly life, if you wanted to leave the covenant, you could have left the covenant. But if you have rejected the Father's ways, you've 
blasphemed his name, defiled his covenant because you already said you want to go into covenant with him. Probably not going to serve well for you at the judgment when it, when you're facing the second death, right? When they when you, when the Yeshua the judge is looking at you facing where does this guy want to live forever? Because if he's going to live forever, the promise of living forever is that you're going to obey all these things, and that includes the Sabbath day. So therefore, if you re reject my sign of the covenant, reject the Sabbath day observance, and you just want to work for profit on that day and going to show the Father that your God is money, if that's your goal, well, then you're rejecting my ways, you're rejecting my covenant, and the judge who judges you according to the terms of the covenant, it may not go well for you at that point, right? So this is why he's saying those who defile it, they, they will die, right? So there was a literal command whenever the judges of Israel were set up, when they were in their community, we're not in that situation now, that context does not apply. But yes, in, in Numbers chapter 15, there was a guy who outwardly defied the covenant that he claimed he wanted to be a part of. And he decided to go try to work on the Sabbath, right? Because he outwardly defied it. He had to face the capital punishment at that point. That's a whole nother lesson. I, I just don't have time to break it all down. Verse 26, wherefore you command the children of Israel to observe this day that they may keep it holy and not thereon, not do thereon any work and not to defile it as it is holier than all other days. We already went over that. Jubilees 2, 27 through 33 says, and whoever profanes it shall surely die. Whoever does any work thereon shall surely die eternally. See that? You should die eternally. So it's not just that you die in this lifetime if you're under the actual uh, leadership and the judgment of the elders and the priests of Israel, right? In this setting, right? We're not there anymore. We're all scattered now, right? So it's a little bit different. But also he's saying, look, if you're going to profane this, that means you 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 said you want to be a covenant, but you're just outright ignoring it. But you're trying to, you, you think you're going to get eternal life? Like, because you're going to have to abide by this multiple Sabbaths for eternity. Like this is the way the father created all of us to work. Even him and the angels do this stuff. So this is why he he goes on to express that the children of Israel may observe this day throughout the generations and not be rooted out of the land for it's a holy and blessed day. We see this also in Exodus 31, 12 to 15, where the father says this as well. It perfectly correlates to what's, what we see in the canon in the book of Exodus. Uh, Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you surely must keep my Sabbaths, plural, for this will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That word sanctifies you is that I disciple you that I get you better at doing my behavior. Verse 14, keep the Sabbath for it's holy to you, set apart to you. Anyone who profanes it must surely be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must surely be put to death. Verse 29, declare and say to the children of Israel, the law of this day, both that they should keep Sabbath thereon and that they should not forsake it in the air of their hearts, and that it is not lawful to do any work thereon which is unseemly, to do thereon their own pleasure, that they should not that that they should not prepare thereon anything to be eaten or drunk, that is not lawful to draw water, um, or bring in or take out throughout their gates any burden which they have not prepared for themselves on the sixth day of their dwellings. Um, this is why you would go on to uh, verse 30 says, and they shall not bring in or take out from their houses from house to house on that day. For that day is more holy and blessed than any Jubilee day of the Jubilees on this. We kept Sabbath in the heavens before it was made known to any flesh to keep Sabbath thereon on the earth, right? Because they had to teach it to Adam and Eve as they were brought in. We're going to read in, in chapter three here, Adam and Eve had to wait. Um, Adam waited a month before he went to the garden and was taught all this information. 
Eve waited two months after her creation before she went into the garden. So this is why the angels were keeping it even before Adam and Eve were aware of it. Also, I just want to point out here, I've actually done a full-on video. It's called, uh, Can I uh, Cook on the Sabbath? And it's one of my most popular videos. Um, more, I should say it's one of my more popular videos. You guys are welcome to look it up. It's on my Kingdom of Context channel if you've never seen it before. Can I Cook on the Sabbath? I go into great detail, breaking down both Jubilee chapter 2, Jubilee chapter 50, Exodus 35, Exodus 16. Um, and I go through all the areas about literally the Sabbath day is to eat and to drink. Yes, there would be cooking meals, and it's for the, the actual sacrifice, which is cooking a meal before the Father uh, through the priesthood. So the average person, yes, it is a feast day where you would prepare stuff. What this is saying in chapter 2 is you shall not do anything that is that if you haven't already prepared the food. So like, don't go out and hunt it if it's the seventh day. You want to already have that done so that you can be ready to prepare it and cook it, if you will. That word prepare is a word that uh, I go into great depth in this in this video. Go check it out when you have a chance. The word prepare is something that you're literally bringing, like it says in the context, to bring into the house, just like with the water. So that way you have everything you need to actually make your Sabbath feast meal, right? You don't have to go out and procure it. You don't have to go a mile away to the well and get water. You don't have to go to the market, the brazier, the braz, the braz, the brazar, what's it called? The brazar back then. Um, you don't have to go there to buy at the meat market to buy your meat. You don't have to go hunt it down, right? You would already have all that taken care of and inside your house on the Sabbath. So you can be ready to make that Sabbath meal. Uh, on that day. You don't have to eat cold food on the Sabbath, guys. Chapter, uh, verse 30. Uh, this, this, I just want to point out here in verse 30, guys. Look closely. They shall not bring in or take out from house to house on that day, for that day is more holy and blessed than any jubilee of the jubilees. On this, we kept Sabbath in the heavens. Before it is made known to any flesh to keep Sabbath there on the earth. Psalm 119.89. The Lord, excuse me, um, your word, O Lord, is everlasting. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. Well, guys, where do, where do the angels live? They live in the heavens, multiple layers of firmament above us. So when this passage tells us that he kept Sabbath in the heavens before it was made known to any flesh to keep Sabbath there on the earth. Why? Because the same instructions are given to the angels. His word is firmly fixed in the heavens. His word is everlasting. This is what this is. Your word, O law, your word, O Lord, is everlasting. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. That's his instructions. That's his covenant terms. That's his words. This is this is what the psalmist is also expressing to us. Jubilees three. On the sixth day of the second week, we brought according to the word of God. Unto Adam, all the beasts, all the cattle, all the birds, and everything that moves on the earth, everything that moves in the water, according to all their kinds, according to their types, the beasts on the first day, the cattle on the second day, the birds on the third day, and all that which moves on the earth the fourth day, and that which moves in the water on the fifth day. So if you guys wonder how long it took for this process to happen, each, each big perspective kind had its own day for naming. Adam named them all by their respective names, and as he called them, so was their name. On these five days, Adam saw all these, male and female, according to every kind that was on the earth, but he was alone and found no helpmate for him. The Lord said to us, it's not good that man should be alone. Let us make a helpmate for him. This is your Genesis 126 moment. I know a lot of people would, I personally think this is the father and the son, as we just read from John, John chapter one, verse 10, all things were made through him, right? Through the son, through the word. 
that, sh- that came and dwelt among us, the flesh, that, the son that became flesh and dwelt among us. So this would be the point before the son came in the flesh. This is me personally. I think this is where the son is with the father. And that's why the father is saying to the angels, it's not good that man should be alone. Let us make a helpmate for him. Why? Because as we already read earlier in Jubilees, he announces what he's going to do with mankind. He, amount- he announces that to the angels. Why? Because the angels were created to serve mankind. So he's telling the people, he's telling the workers, the object of their work, obviously he's going to have to, he's going to, he's creating, you know, he's, he's creating not just one man, but he's creating a woman now. So now they can procreate. So now all these millions and millions of angels, they're getting told, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to create him a woman. Well, that's obviously they're going to understand what that means. Yahweh's going to explain to them. I'm, I mean, it's not good. Man's alone. I'll give him a, give him a woman. They already know what male and female is because they watched and made all the animals. So now he's going to make male and female of mankind. So that means, oh, procreation. Oh, and if they were told that their job is to go help mankind, well, there's a lot of them for just one man. You need more mankind. So they have something to do. This is why he's looking to them. He's saying, Let, let's let's uh, expand this man thing. We're going to make a helpmate for him. Make a female. We're going to go on. We're going to go into the, some of the role of the angels here in just a minute. But this is the there's a reason why he would announce to his servants, those he loves, his sons, the angels, why he would announce what he's doing with mankind, because it directly pertains to the job of why the angels are created. It's all to work together. Verse five, the Lord, our God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. He slept and he took for the woman one rib from amongst his ribs. And the rib was the origin of the woman from amongst his ribs. And he built up the flesh and instead and he built the woman. And he awakened Adam out of his sleep. And on awakening, he rose in the sixth day and he brought her to him. And he, he knew her and said to her, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called my wife because she was taken from her husband. Therefore shall man and wife be one. And therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Jubilees 3, 8 through 13. In the first week was Adam created and the rib his wife. In the second week, he showed her unto him. And for this reason, the commandment was given to keep in their defilement for a male seven days and for a female twice seven days. That's 14 days. Um, and I'm actually going to read the parallel in Leviticus here in just a second, but I'm going to go on and, and read the rest of this passage as well, just because this is where we get the instruction from Leviticus, in case you ever wonder why, how it makes sense. Verse 9, and after Adam completed 40 days in the land where he'd been created, we brought him into the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Did you guys catch that? So after Adam had been created for 40 days in the land where he was made, then they took him to the Garden of Eden. So what we just read in the previous few verses where all the animals were brought over a five-day period to Adam for him to name them, that happened outside the garden. So there's animals outside the garden. And what we're going to read here in a minute is the animals that are inside the garden they have to go outside the garden when Adam and Eve are scattered from the land for transgression, just like Israel later. And it will explain that those animals then go out to the places that were created for those specific animals. Right? So just showing you here that Adam was created not inside the garden of Eden, but outside in the regular land going into the garden was its own enclosed area i've done an entire broadcast it's actually in my playlist here on kingdom cast it's called the kingdom of the garden and i go over this with great depth verse 10 for this reason the commandments written on the heavenly tablets in regard to her that gives birth if she bears a male 
She shall remain in her uncleanness seven days, according to the first week of days. And thirty and three days shall she remain in the blood of her purifying. And she shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor enter into the sanctuary, until she accomplishes these days, which are enjoined in the case of a male child. So now the woman who gave birth has to wait forty days before she can come to a set-apart place. Verse 11, but in the case of a female child, she shall remain in her uncleanness two weeks of days, that's 14 days, and according to the first two weeks and 66 days in the blood of her purification, and they will in all be 80 days. So now she has a female, she births a female little girl just to wait 80 days before she comes near any type of sanctuary or anything that's holy and set apart. Verse 13, therefore she, therefore there was ordained regarding her who bears a male and a female child, the statue of those days that she should not touch no hallowed thing, nor enter into the sanctuary until these days for the male and female child are accomplished. We see this also, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. We see this expressed in Leviticus 12, 1 through 7, right here. Same thing, same numbers, everything. 40 days for a male child, 80 days for a female child, same thing. Except it's now in the context of Moses and the Israelites and the tent of meeting that they had, they were traveling around with and everything. So as all the Israelites were having children during their time in the days of, you know, in the wilderness for 40 years, they knew what to do as far as coming forward and bringing them. Because as you see in verse six here, it says the days of her purification are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, a year old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a total dove for a sin offering. So she can't do that until she's finished these days of purification, according to whether she had a male or female. And then the priest does their job on her behalf. So this came, this same instruction in Leviticus 12, Jubilees is telling us that the father was consistent and he even kept it back in uh, when Adam and Eve were created originally which I think is kind of fascinating. Jubilees 3, 14 through 19. So this is the law and the testimony which was written for Israel in order that they should observe it all the days. And in the first week of the first Jubilee, Adam and his wife were in the Garden of Eden for seven years, telling and keeping it. We gave him work and we instructed him to do everything that's suitable for tillage. This is also Genesis 3, 24. And the reason why I show this, this idea here, guys, is they're in the Garden of Eden. The we, look at the, the pronouns here. So we gave him work and we instructed him to do everything that's suitable for tillage. This is again, this is the angel speaking to Adam. The angels that were in the garden with him were to show them how to live. They were, to, you know, this is brand new created beings here. So the angels actually are older than them by a few days and they've been shown how to live. So now it's their job to go and show Adam and Eve how to live. So that's what they're doing in the garden. Big brothers explaining to little brother what happened. You know, this is how you do it, right? So Genesis 3.24, how do we know that there were angels in the garden? Well, we see in Genesis 3.24, there's literally an angel that stands guard after they're driven out, driven out, because that's where the angels were presiding. As we read earlier in Jubilees chapter 2, that's why they were keeping Sabbath on the heaven and on the earth. The angels were keeping Sabbath in heaven and on the earth, because the Garden of Eden is on the earth. That's where they were presiding inside the garden to teach Adam and Eve what to do. That's why when Adam and Eve were kicked out in Genesis 3.24, there's a cherubim, that's angels, stationed at the east side of the Garden of Eden with the flaming sword to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So basically saying nobody can get back in, right? This is why, because there are already angels there helping them. After the completion of the seven years, which he had kept completed there, seven years exactly, and in the second month on the 17th day of the month, guys, put in the comments, isn't that the same day as when uh, the, the ark came to rest after the end of the flood? 
The serpent came and approached the woman, and the serpent said to the woman, Has God commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? That you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And she said to it, Of all the trees of the fruit, excuse me, of all the fruit of the trees of the garden, God said to us, Eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said to us, You shall not eat thereof, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that on the day you shall eat it thereof, your eyes will be opened, and you will be as gods, and you will know good and evil. Now, this is interesting because it doesn't, there's no weirdness in translation here, like you get sometimes with, with the uh, canon. A lot of people like to take away that this idea from Satan tempting Eve, trying to make it seem like Satan's telling Eve that you can be God. No, he's saying you can be as gods, right? That's lowercase g. That's a, that's a, lesser form of the almighty like you could be as an angel basically right which is the people they were interacting with so you could be as an angel and you will know good and evil so that's the that's the same thing we see in genesis chapter three the woman saw the tree was agreeable and pleasant to the eye and that its fruit was good for food she took thereof and ate and when she had first covered her shame with fig leaves she gave therefore to adam and he ate and his eyes were opened and he saw that he was naked and he took fig leaves and sewed them together and made an apron for himself, and he covered his shame. And God cursed the serpent and was angry with it forever. And he was angry with the woman because she hearkened to the voice of the serpent and did eat. And he said to her, I'll greatly multiply your sorrows and your pains. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your return shall be unto your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam also he said, because you've hearkened unto the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree which I commanded that you should not eat thereof. Cursed be the ground for your sake. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you. And you shall eat your bread in the sweat of your face. Till you return to the earth from where you were taken. For earth you are, and unto earth shall you return. And he made for them coats of skin, and clothed them, and sent them forth from the garden of Eden. And on that day in which Adam went forth from the garden, he offered as a sweet savor an offering, frankincense and galbanum and stacti and spices in the morning when the rising of the sun from the day when he covered his shame. Sounds like the morning, the morning offerings, or at least one of them. We also see this idea of once they have Cain and Abel, they're doing sacrifices, specifically bringing forth fruit of the ground. Who taught them that? This is what I've been trying to say, guys. The angels already taught Adam everything that was suitable for tillage. And also there's another verse which says it taught him to put aside residue. So they already taught Adam and Eve everything they were supposed to do. We got literally Adam before he leaves the garden doing acts of a priest and worshiping. So now it makes perfect sense since he's the elder, he would be the priest over Adam and Eve. Uh, over He would be the priest over Eve and Cain and Abel. That's, how it, that's why he's now... He's in. This is why you would have Cain and Abel bringing forward an actual offering, and it, Cain's gets rejected because it's he's not bringing the right kind. This is explained to you in the Septuagint, by the way. He doesn't bring the right divided amount. Let's put it like that. He doesn't bring what I would believe to be the tenth. So there's that's why they're following the law of God. They're following the instructions that the angels who also keep this law in heaven expressed to Adam how to do this stuff. And that's why we see Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 5, also doing the same behavior. So it's that simple. Jubilees 3, 28 through 35. And on that day, that's the day that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the day that he also burned the incense on an altar in the garden. Think about that for a moment. 
And on that day was closed the mouth of all beasts and all cattle and birds and whatever walks and whatever moves, so they could no longer speak, for they had all spoken with one another with one lip and with one tongue. Guys, I promise you, in the kingdom of heaven, the animals will speak and will all speak Hebrew according to Jubilees. Purified lips, purified tongue of all Israel, Zechariah 3, 9, Parmas. Everyone's going to be speaking the language of creation again, which will be Hebrew, even the animals, according to scriptures. But we see this kind of concept validated, this claim of Jubilees chapter 3, 28. We see it validated in Numbers 24, 26 through 30. It's the story of Balaam, right? He's this, this prophet that he's trying to do something the father doesn't want him to do. His donkey actually has to get in the mix. It's pretty interesting. Numbers 22, 26 through 30. The angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn right or left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he became furious and beat her with the staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey. So Balaam's not surprised this donkey is talking to him, I promise you, because he knows the story of what we just done. This is a guy who's supposed to be a prophet of the Lord. It means he knows the law of the Lord. In verse 29, he actually answers the donkey. You've made a fool of me. If I had sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. In verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam, I'm not the donkey. Am I not the donkey you have ridden your all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? But in, go read the fullness of that chapter in Numbers 22. Um, the, the donkey's actually saving him from going close to this angel because the angel was going to kill him because this, this Balaam was going to go do something he should have been doing. The point is, verse 28, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. Why? Because the Lord closed the mouth of all the beasts, animals, everything that moves and walks when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. So for seven years, both inside the garden and outside the garden, from what I can understand, all of creatures, every, everything that was created that moves, birds, cattle, beasts, whatever walks, all these things could talk. So therefore, suddenly, oh, the serpent that tries to tempt Eve, well, that's not a big deal anymore, is it? Who influenced the serpent to do that? That's that's where we get a little bit deeper, right? With the, the angel Zazel, also called Gadriel and Mastima and, you know, various other names. So this is where it gets a little deeper. But the point is, they can talk and they could converse with Adam and Eve in the garden wasn't a big deal. Genesis 3 shouldn't be a big surprise to us had we had access to the book of Jubilees, chapter 3, this whole time. Verse 29, he says, And Yahweh sent out of the Garden of Eden all flesh that was in the Garden of Eden, and all flesh was scattered according to its kind and according to its types unto the places which had been created for them. So this is interesting because now we know that they weren't just, that, you know, all these claims that we have from, you know, evolutionists. <laughs> there were specific places on the earth that were created for these animals. The father intended all this. Remember in the forethought of the knowledge of his heart, all this, he created everything, knowing where everything was going to go, how everything was going to function together, masterfully, beautifully, brilliantly made. Even to the point where when these animals who were in the garden suddenly can't be there anymore, they have assigned places for them already. Verse 30 into Adam alone. Did he give the wherewithal to cover his shame of all the beasts and the cattle and on this account, it's prescribed in the heavenly tablets as touching all those who know the judgment of the law that they should cover their shame, should not uncover themselves as the Gentiles uncover themselves. And on the new moon of the fourth month, Adam and his wife went forth from the Garden of Eden, and they dwelt in the land of Elda in the land of their creation. Adam called the name of his wife Eve, and they had no son till the first jubilee. After this, he knew her. So that means after eight in the eighth year, he finally had a son. 
Okay, serpent seed is not a thing. Uh, if you guys want to go check that on my main channel, Kingdom in Context, um, I did a two-part debate with a brother in the Lord um, who believes in it. I don't believe in it. I've tried to debunk it in multiple ways, and you guys can go watch that. It's on Kingdom in Context. Uh, just type in serpent seed debate, Kingdom in Context. Verse 35, now he tilled the land as he had been instructed in the Garden of Eden. Adam was taught by the angels what to do, how to live, how to till the land inside the garden. That means that inside the garden is real land. It's a real place. It's the called paradise. It's coming back. It's the new Jerusalem. It's a real place. Water, trees, land, bushes, trees that grow fruit, land that can be tilled and harvested, potatoes, carrots, whatever, beans. Like you can grow stuff, which means you have first fruits to bring forward to the altar for first fruits. It's a real place, guys. It's a real place. So it goes on here in Jubilees chapter 4. In the third week in the second Jubilee, he gave birth to Cain. And in the fourth, she gave birth to Abel. And in the fifth, she gave birth to Awan, daughter Awan. And in the first year of the third Jubilee, Cain slew Abel because God accepted the sacrifice of Abel, but did not accept the sacrifice, accept the offering of Cain. He slew him in the field. His blood cried from the ground to heaven, complaining because he had slain him. The Lord reproved Cain because of Abel, because he had slain him. And he made him a fugitive on the earth because of the blood of his brother. And he cursed him upon the earth. And on this account, it's written on the heavenly tablets. Cursed is he who smites his neighbor treacherously. Let all who have seen and heard say, so be it. And the man who has seen and not declared it, let him be accursed as the other. Guys, every time in the book of Jubilees where we read, in, like in verse 5, it says, on this account, it's written on the heavenly tablets. They're saying this action lines up with the Bible they already have in heaven. The heavenly tablets, that the whole premise of the book of Jubilees, where God says to Moses, come up to the mountain, I'm going to give you this law and testimony that I've written for you. It's already written in heaven. Since creation, God already had all this written down. This is how you behave. And this is what happens when you don't behave according to this. This is why every time in the book of Jubilees, it's literally telling you this is the Bible they're following in heaven. This is the scriptures. This is the word that's written down in heaven. Verse 6, and for this reason we announce when we come before the Lord our God, all the sin which is committed in heaven and on earth and in light and in darkness and everywhere. Who announces it? The angels. That's the narrator of the book of Jubilees. The angels on the mountain speaking to Moses. For 40 days and 40 nights, they're telling Moses, hey, this is part of our job uh, it, for this reason. like because, because like these things are already written in heaven, and then when mankind does something that's against what's written in heaven, that's what we report on. So we're going to go back and we can tell the father, Cain killed Abel. For this reason, we announce when we come before the Lord our God, all the sin which is committed in heaven, in heaven, and on earth, and in light, and in darkness, and everywhere. Job 2.1. So let's look at Job 2.1 just real quick. This is, on another day, the sons of God, that's the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. We, that's all another conversation. Let's let's not talk about the Satan part right now. I, I've talked about in other videos, but let's just let's focus on the idea. This is in Job 1 and in Job 2. Two different occasions where it, it's mentioning this moment that Jubilees just mentioned, that the angels come before God and present themselves before the Lord. What do they do when they're doing that? 
Well, Exodus 23 tells us that the law, the same law that the angels in heaven follow, said that the males of Israel should present themselves before the Lord three times a year. It's interesting. What also happens three times a year at Unleavened Bread, Shavuot, and Atonement? Or not, not just Atonement, um, uh, Sukkot. Numbers 28 29 tells you that sacrifices for forgiveness of sin, atonement sacrifices happen on those days too, carried out by a priesthood. The angels have a priesthood. The messenger angels receive the sins of mankind, and when they go back three times a year to present to the Father, the tally is, ta the tally is spoken. So, but there's forgiveness of sin, right? This is why the priesthood is in operation. There's forgiveness of sin. But it's interesting, though. We see this in the, in the canon of 66. In case you're unfamiliar with the book of Jubilees and you think, what is this wildness? It used to be a part of uh, the literature of ancient Israel as a part of their scriptures. Lots of evidence to that. And I've gone over it in other videos. So this whole thing is an idea that the angels are following the same process because they're a part of a priesthood too. Priesthood is someone who's supposed to teach mankind, help mankind, follow the ways of Yahweh. And when that doesn't happen, you have to un you have to know the sins of mankind in order to relay them to the Father for propitiation. This is why they would come before the Father as well. In addition to the fellowship of the feasts. So then we have verse 7, Julius 4, 7. Adam and his wife mourned for Abel four weeks of years, and in the fourth year of the fifth week they became joyful, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bare him a son. By the way, this is like years later, like 63 years later, if you do the math on what her jubilee is, and the fourth year, the fifth week, and all that. This is a long time later. She has she births uh, Seth. Okay, serpent seed is not a thing. Adam knew his wife again. She bare him a son, and he called his name Seth, for he said, God has raised up a second seed unto us on the earth instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. I don't have time to go into it right now, but the whole terminology of Seth becoming a second seed on the earth it relates directly to the priesthood. Um, I'm actually going to be highlighting this particular part and explaining this in the contextual study guide as well. But um, so we have, we have the Job Jubilees 4, 8 through 15. He says, in the sixth week, he begat his daughter Azora, and Cain took Awan, his sister, to be his wife. Do you, have you ever wondered? Cain went off to land east of the land of Nod and with his wife and had a child. Well, that's because it was part of his apparently one of the children of Adam and Eve. But only makes sense since you've got uh, no one else to procreate. There's no female angels. Cain took Awan, his sister, to be his wife, and she bare him Enoch at the close of the fourth jubilee. This is not the same Enoch that's birthed from Jared. And in the first year of the first week of the fifth jubilee, houses were built on the earth, and Cain built a city. He called its name after the name of his son Enoch. I always wonder where that is. It'd be interesting if that was ever somehow discovered and validated through archaeology. Not that they would tell us. In ver chapter, verse 10, he says, Adam knew his wife Eve. She bare him yet nine sons. That's how, you, that's how you get the family going quickly. In the fifth week of the fifth jubilee, Seth took Azor his wife, to, his, his, took Azor his sister to be his wife. In the fourth year of the sixth week, she bare him Enos. He began to call on the name of the Lord, on the name of the Lord on the earth. In the seventh jubilee, in the third week, Enos took Naomi his sister to be his wife, and she bare him a son in the third year of the fifth week, and called his name Kenan. At the close of the eighth jubilee, Kenan took Mahulet, Muel, excuse me. Mu'alalets, Mu'alalets, I think that said that, his sister to be his wife, and she bare him a son in the ninth jubilee in the first week of the third year of the week, and he called his name Mahalalel. That makes so much sense now that you realize his mother, his name Mu'alalets, so she's going to have a kid named Mahalalel. <laughs> Poor Kenan. 
Uh, um, and in the second week of the 10th Jubilee, Mahalalel took unto him to wife Dinah, the daughter of Barakiel, the daughter of his father's brother. And she bare him a son in the third week of the sixth year. And she called his name Jared. From the days of the angels, for in his days, in the days of Jared, the angels of the Lord descended on the earth, those who were named the watchers, that they should instruct the children of men, that they should do judgment and uprightness on the earth. Now, guys, this is a point where I, I try to share this with people in times past when we do different videos. And I'm like, guys, look, Jubilees 4, 15, it tells you directly why the angels were on the earth. Because there's so much debate about Genesis 6, the idea that the, the sons of God, the angels took wives of whom they chose. And there's entire seminaries out there that try to tell people, oh, those weren't angels. Those are just the children of Seth. And they were called sons of God because they were kind of like the good line. And then you got the children of Cain. They were just, they were called the daughters of men. Uh, that's, it was their daughters that they're just called men instead of being called sons of God, because they weren't, you know, they were the bad line. All that's assumption. All that's eisegesis. That's not in the scriptures at all. In fact, it's clear up for you here in Jubilees chapter four, verse 14, verse 15. Right. And this is the upright parallel. Not only is it the same, is it literally tell you that the angels of heaven descended, right? The angels of the Lord doesn't even say the sons of God at this point it says the angels of the Lord. These are not men descended on the earth, but they came for a reason. And they're called the watchers, which is exactly what Genesis 6, 1 says as well. They're called the watchers for a reason. They, they came to help, to, like it says, to instruct men that they should do judgment and uprightness on the earth. They should, that means they should follow the law of God. Angels who keep the law of God are sent to teach man how to do the law of God. Not only is this in Genesis 6, 1 through 2, but this is explained to us as the job of angels in Hebrews 1.14, you see the center of the screen here, are not the angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit in a salvation? This is exactly what Jubilees 4.15 tells you why the watchers were sent in the beginning. To teach men what's right, to help them. These mankind are the people that are supposed to inherit salvation, right? The eternal life part. The angels already got the eternal life part. So they are supposed to help little brother do what's right. And unfortunately, while they were here, they... Some of them did not. Some of them rebelled. They, they got tempted and lusted after women and had some other ideas that popped in their head. So Jude 1.6 also validates this whole story, calling them directly angels and the angels who did not stay within their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling. That means they didn't go back home when they were supposed to, right? Because what did Jubilees 4.15 just tell us? They were sent here on a mission, teach mankind judgments and uprightness. They're not intended to live on the earth, just like all angels are sent here on a mission. And when the mission's done, they go back home. But these guys didn't go back home. They took wives, had families, and stuck around. It created mass lawlessness, wickedness that eventually led to giants and led to the flood. So this is why their punishment, as Jude expounds, which we're going to read about in Jubilees, is these he has kept in eternal chains under darkness, bound for judgment on that great day. So... Yeah, that was the end of that slide. So it goes on to say in 16 through 21, in the 11th Jubilee, Jared took himself a wife. Her name was Baraka, the daughter of Razujal, and a daughter of his father's brother. In the fourth week of this Jubilee, she bare him a son in the fifth week. In the fourth year of the Jubilee, he called his name Enoch. He was the first among men that are born on earth who learned writing and knowledge and wisdom and who wrote down the signs of heaven according to their order of their months in a book, that men might know the seasons of the years according to the order of their separate months. He was to write the. He was the first to write a testimony. He testified to the sons of men among the generations of the earth, recounted the weeks of the jubilees, and made known to them the days of the years, and set in order in the order of the months. And he recounted the sabbaths of the years as we made them known to him. 
He's being taught the law of God, guys, by the angels. Enoch himself is being taught the law of God by the angels, according to Jubilees. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. This Torah is eternal. It's everywhere, guys. Did not show up at Sinai for the first time. It's all the patriarchs kept it. This is how the father would know who's good and who's bad. This is literally the eternal behavior of heaven that's fixed in the heavens. Verse 19. And what was and what will be, Enoch saw in a vision of his sleep, as it will happen to the children of men throughout their generations until the day of judgment. He saw and understood everything. He wrote his testimony and placed the testimony on earth for all the children of men and for their generations. Guys, this testimony he wrote down, it says not just for the children of Israel in covenant, for all children of men and their generations. Well, guys, this is actually what he says in First Enoch 104, 8 through 13. This is Enoch, the writings of Enoch. says, now I show you that light and darkness, day and night. See all your sins. This is what we repeated back in uh, Jubilees chapter 2 about the angels, how they go and they, they record everything that happens in the darkness and the light. Verse 9, he says, be not godless in your hearts and lie not and alter not the words of uprightness. Yeah, that's, here's looking at you, Westcott and Hort. Nor charge with lying the words of the Holy Great One, nor take account of your idols for all your lying and all your godless issue, not in righteousness, but in great sin. Verse 10, and now I know this mystery. So Enoch is about to share something that was shared with him. Just like Paul says, I got, I got a mystery I'm going to tell you, right? So verse 10, Enoch says, now I know this mystery, that sinners will alter and pervert the words of righteousness in many ways. That's the law of God. That sinners will pervert and alter the law of God in many ways. And will speak wicked words and lie and practice great deceits and write books concerning their words. I can think of a few of them right now. But when they write down truthfully all my words in their languages and do not change or diminish anything from my words, but write them all down truthfully, all that I first testified concerning them. Just what Jubilees chapter four told us about Enoch, right? He, he got this testimony he wrote down for all generations, all mankind. Verse 12, then I know another mystery that books will be given to the righteous and the wise to become a cause of joy and uprightness and much wisdom. And to them shall the books be given, and they shall believe in them and rejoice over them. And then shall all the righteous who have learned therefrom, that's from the books that they were given, they shall rejoice. Then shall all the righteous who have learned therefrom, all the paths of uprightness be recompensed. I can't see any other way to, to see this than, than what we're experiencing in our life. We have this wonderful collection of scripture passed down to us, spread all across the world that believers rejoice in, cling to part of their faith for learning, understanding, sanctification, and the hope of the resurrection. That's the, uh, by the way, that's the recompense is the resurrection. You practice the paths of uprightness, you get resurrected. Here it is. This is Enoch. Breaking it down. Same same story since, since mankind began. Do the, do the paths of the creator. They're called paths of uprightness. Nothing changes. Jubilee chapter 4, 20 through 27. He testified to the watchers. Enoch testified to the watchers who had sinned with the daughters of men. For these he had begun to unite, for the, the angels had begun to unite themselves so as to be defiled with the daughters of men. And Enoch testified against them all. This is expounded upon in First Enoch chapter uh, 14 and 15. Verse 23. He was taken from amongst the children of men and we conducted him into the Garden of Eden in majesty and honor. And behold, there he writes down the condemnation and judgment of the world and all the wickedness of the children of men. That doesn't mean forever, guys. We're going to go next time in the next installment of this little series here. I'm going to go over chapter seven where it directly tells you Enoch died. Right. This is the, the next verse is your context to this statement of why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Enoch 
he was uh, pretty stellar in his behavior. He knew the law of God really well. Angels took him back in the garden. That's where he spent the 300 years with the angels, as uh, Jubilees tells us in chapter 7, and also we see um, in Genesis chapter 5. This is where he gets all the books he writes down, all the visions all the time, and he's taking away from all the death that was happening outside there. So for the purpose of him to be a witness against mankind, this also would be the role of a priest. And then it says in verse 24, on account of it, on account of what? On account of Enoch writing down the condemnation and judgment of the world, the wickedness of the children of men. On account of that, God brought the waters to the flood upon all the land of Eden. God needs a testimony. He needs someone to testify, good or bad, of what's happening. So in matters pertaining to men, yeah, the, the angels also testified in heaven above as well, but Enoch was determined amongst mankind to write down a, a testament of condemnation because of all the wickedness that was going on and everything that was happening. So God needed to take him to a place where he could do that undisturbed. Because the as you read the fullness of the book of Enoch, the actual rebellious angels ask Enoch because he was so righteous and, and his behavior was better than theirs. He, they ask Enoch to intercede for them, but it doesn't go well. So this is why he says, for there he set that for there in the Garden of Eden, Enoch was set as a sign that he should testify against all the children of men, that he should recount all the deeds of the generations until the day of condemnation. This is why I've done an entire breakdown, guys. If you want to go check it out, it's on um, Kingdom of Context. It's a video called Where is Enoch Now? It's a part of my Milk and Meat playlist. So go to my playlists, go to Milk and Meat, click on that, scroll down the videos, uh, and go to Where is Enoch Now? And I do a full breakdown on Enoch's lifespan. It wasn't just 365 years. That was how long he was um, alive, plus the time he spent with the angels. But it goes in a greater depth uh, than what Genesis gives you. It goes in a greater depth than in other testaments. To expound on the lifespan, this is why you also can even have Noah going to the edge of the garden in the book of Enoch, chapter 85, and asking Enoch for advice, because that he was set in the garden as a sign in a priestly position to actually be a scribe, uh, which is what he's called, which is a part of a priestly duty, and to basically write down, recount all the deeds of the generation until the day of condemnation of the flood. This is this is what it's all about. It's about him being in that generation a witness against them because the the flood needed validation. He burnt the incense of the sanctuary. Whoa. Enoch inside the garden. Did a priestly duty, just like Adam did when he left at the beginning of chapter four, or excuse me, the end of chapter three. Sanctuary is still in the garden. Go check out my kingdom cat or my, uh, yeah, the kingdom cast episode called kingdom of the garden. I explain the whole, the whole thing, the whole thing, guys, verse 25, he burnt the incense of the sanctuary in the garden because that's where he was for 300 years with the angels. Even sweet spice is acceptable before the Lord on the mountain. By the way, guys, in case you're wondering, the the tree of life was already removed. This is what the book of Enoch tells us as he's getting a big tour, right? He doesn't Enoch doesn't have access to the tree of life either. It was already removed after Adam and Eve were taken out. The angel was set there to guard the way through life, but then later it was actually removed to a different place. Enoch doesn't have access to it either. Verse 26, for the Lord has four places on the earth, the Garden of Eden, the Mount of the East, I don't, I don't actually know where that is. Um, I have theories, but I don't technically know where that is. And this mountain on which you are this day. Now, some people would say the Mount of the East is called the, the Mount of Olives uh, because it's east of um, Mount Zion. Possible, possible, but I don't know for sure. And this mountain, that's Mount Sinai, which you are on this day. And then Mount Zion, which will be sanctified in the new creation for a sanctification of the earth. 
And through it, will the earth be sanctified from all its guilt and its uncleanness throughout the generations of the world? Guys, this is fulfilled in prophecy through Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. The many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. All these key terms are here, guys, in this short passage. He will teach us his ways. What is that? The Torah, the righteousness, the paths of uprightness, right behavior. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For the law, just in case you were confused about what his ways were, for the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem. Then he will judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. That's the job of a priest. That's what the authority he gave to his son, Yeshua. They will beat their, their swords into plowshares and their pruning, excuse me, They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer take up the sword against nation, nor train anymore for war. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 2, 2-5. So this here is a millennial reign. New Jerusalem descends to the earth. All the nations in the last days, all the nations will come to the mountain of the house of the Lord. They'll be the chief of the mountains. That's also explained in Enoch chapter 25. Everyone will want to go there so they can learn how to live in peace. No more war, no more taxes, no more $8,800 billion a year from the Pentagon for military spending. None of that stuff, guys. Plenty of abundance of resources on the earth for men to live in peace amongst each other. And this is what will happen in millennial reign. This is why he, Yeshua reigns as king, as prince of peace. He teaches the whole world how to walk in the behavior of the creator. It's a beautiful time. Um, lastly, verse 27. In the 14th Jubilee, Methuselah took himself a wife, Edna, the daughter of Azrael, the daughter of his father's brother. In the third week, in the first year of this week, he begat a son and called his name Lamech. Lamech. In the 15th Jubilee, in the third week, Lamech took himself a wife. Her name was Betanos, the daughter of Barakil, the daughter of his father's brother. And in this week, she bore him a son and called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort me for my trouble and all my work for the ground which the Lord has cursed. And at the close of the 19th Jubilee, in the seventh week and the sixth year thereof, Adam died. All his sons buried him in the land of his creation. He was the first to be buried in the earth. He lacked 70 years and 1,000 years. For 1,000 years are as one day in the testimony of the heavens. Therefore, it is written concerning the tree of knowledge. On the day that you eat thereof, you shall die. For this reason... Adam did not complete the years of this day, for he did. He died during it. He died during the thousand years. At the close of this jubilee, Cain was killed after him in the same manner, for his house fell upon him, and he died in the midst of his house. He was killed by its stones, for with a stone he had killed Abel, and by a stone he uh, was he killed in righteous judgment. For this reason, it's ordained on the heavenly tablets, meaning this is what's written in the Bible in heaven. With the instrument with which a man kills his neighbor, with the same shall he be killed. And after the manner that he wounded him, in like manner shall they deal with him. So guys, I actually want to, you know, I want to jump into this kind of as quickly as I can. I, I'm already here at like an hour and 44 minutes. I want to take some questions from you guys. One second. Because... There's something that I did not, you know, for a long time, I did not understand entirely the idea of, of these passages I'm about to read. Something happens with Judah, and then later something instructed the priest in Leviticus. But this makes so much sense to me now, this idea of what happens in verse 31 with Cain, that it's supposedly ordained on the heavenly tablets. 
that the instrument with which a man kills his neighbor, with the same shall he be killed. Well, if we go to Leviticus 21.9, we get a very controversial instruction for capital punishment pertaining to um, a daughter of a priest. Leviticus 21.9 says, If a priest's daughter defiles herself by prostituting herself, she profanes her father, she must be burned in the fire. Well, it took me to actually do what we try to encourage and do on this channel, which is to look for context. So I looked up the context of the idea of prostituting yourself, both from this translation and other translations, as well as other uses of that throughout other books. It's not just talking about simple prostitution. It's not talking about the simple prostitution we see perpetrated in deception by Tamar towards Judah in Genesis 38. Leviticus 21.9 is actually talking about a temple prostitute. So this would be something where when they were worshiping Baal, there was a whole, their church service was very, very nasty, very gross. They had, I can't, this is a PG-13 show. I can't really tell you everything they did. It was gross. Lots of sexual morality. Uh, there was drugs, there's alcohol, and there is human sacrifice. The prostituting part, which is a woman that plays the temple whore, the temple prostitute, that would have happened after, from my understanding, from my from my research, that would have happened after the children are passed through the fire. And if you guys understand what that means, that they would do human sacrifice, they would take their babies and pass through the fire to Molech, also representative of Baal. That child is burned alive. So if someone, if a, if a woman, just specifically a priest's daughter, there's other, there's other passages uh, that I could go into, but it's the whole teaching by itself. I'm just trying to give you the highlights here. But if a, if a woman that was a priest's daughter had decided to actually go worship Baal, it means she's transgressing the covenant in a very serious way to go through all these rituals to get to the part where she actually engages in the, the sexual immorality part and is now considered a temple prostitute. Remember, there were male and female prostitution happening. So the average person could go in there and take part in these rituals. These rituals still happen today. They just happen underground. But back in the day, in these outward open temples, they could go in there and take part in these rituals. Well, the prostituting part, the sexual morality part, usually happened after the child was sacrificed. So that means that this woman had also taken part in burning a someone alive. So her death is to be burned in fire because that's what she did to her fellow man. Do you see now the correlation? So to me, I didn't always understand the judgments that I see that seem to be different, but in the coming of the Lord where the angels kill some by the sword and some are thrown in like a fire. Now I get it. The Bible in heaven tells you how to deal with, with these types of transgressions. Someone that's taken part in burning other people alive through these occult rituals, their judgment, they're destroyed by fire. Someone that hasn't, but they still deserve death, they may get you know, killed with the sword. Very different death. Genesis 38, 24, Judah thinks, he thinks Tamar had been doing this behavior. That's why it says about three months later, Judah was told your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has prostituted herself, and now she's pregnant. So they actually 
this this makes a lot more sense to why he would immediately say, bring her out and let her be burned. Right? Then, of course, it's revealed that she actually had not been prostituting herself because Judah saw exactly what she did because he was the one that knocked her up. Judah didn't, he he stepped on the, he saw her and stepped to the side on the side of the road where she was um, and took her as a prostitute, but not as a temple in a temple ritual. So it's a totally different context. But because the report was brought to him, she prostituted herself under the same context of Lexus 21 9. He was thinking, oh, that must be the type of, it must have been, she must have taken part in a temple ritual. That's why he would say, let me burn to death because it's part of the law of God. Both Jubilees, Leviticus, other places talk about it. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, and of course, the second death, you know, everyone's going to be burned with fire in the second death, but that's, you know, it's a little different context. So the body and the soul of the story, not just the body. So just very interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Guys, last chapter, I was trying to get through this. Um, these are big chapters. Last chapter real quick. We don't have a lot of commentary on this one, but and I'll take some of your questions. So please get them prepared if you have any. Julius 5, 1 through 7. It came to pass when the children of men began multiplying on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them and the angels of God saw them on a certain year of this jubilee. I wish I knew what that was. It doesn't expound. It doesn't tell me the significance of why they did this on a certain year of this jubilee. That they were beautiful to look upon. They took themselves wives of all whom they chose. They bare unto them sons and they were giants. This is validated in Genesis 6, 4 as well. Lawlessness increased on the earth and all flesh corrupted its way. Alike men and cattle, beasts and birds and everything that walks on the earth, all of them corrupted their ways and their orders. They began to devour each other. That's part of occult rituals, cannibalism. And lawlessness increased on the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of all men was thus evil continually. Lawlessness increased on the earth. You cannot have lawlessness if you don't have a law. So therefore, as we've expounded with great detail, the law of God was given to mankind to practice since the garden. This is why you've got evil on the earth leading up to the flood. That means people were transgressing the law of God. This is the whole intent, the original intent, why the watchers were sent to earth was to teach men judgment and uprightness. Some of them failed at that job, or they did fail at that job. The 200 that came down here, they failed at that job. They succumbed to the lawlessness themselves. <laughs> so showing you that they're, you know, they need forgiveness too, which is why other angels talk about reporting the sins that happen in earth and in heaven. But that's a bigger story. We can talk about that later. God looked up on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. All the flesh had corrupted its orders. All that were up on the earth, all had wrought all manner of evil before his eyes. And he said that he would destroy man and all flesh upon the face of the earth, which he created. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That means Noah did the law of God. That's how you found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is why Yeshua perfectly does the law of God on our behalf. That's how he ministers as a high priest over us. That's why he was considered perfect and without sin in Hebrews 3. Therefore, he can bring that grace, which means merited favor, extend it to us through his perfect behavior. This is what people have taken that idea and called it imputed righteousness, and they take that way out of context. And it's a kind of a Catholic idea, if you will, that's not in the Bible. But the only reason we find grace in the eyes of the Father is through our high priest Yeshua because of his behavior. We don't have always, we don't always have unmerited favor, right? We have to have merit. This is the whole point of discipleship, sanctification, obedience, confessing your sins to Christ. He then makes propitiation atonement for you through his high priesthood because of the grace given to his obedience. He can then give us the spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit given to us because of his favor 
See, there's a, there's a chain of command. There's a process that happens because we have a high priest, Yeshua. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was doing it. It's why he calls him just in his generations and righteous. He was doing the law of God. So we just have to get good at the law of God. We still are going to need our Savior. Don't get me wrong, guys. We're going to still need our high priest of many force. We're still going to be needing to confess our sins. The point is, though, this is why Noah was chosen. He was practicing the law of God. Was he perfect at it? No. But he was a priest, which means he knew how to do it really well. He had practiced it and accomplished and exhibited the proficiency of that behavior really well. This is why the priests are held to a higher standard. Verse 6, And the, against the angels whom he had sent upon the earth, he was exceedingly angry. He gave commandment to root them out of all their dominion, and he ordered us to bind them in the depths of the earth. And behold, they are bound in the midst of them and are kept separate. And against their sons, thus the giants, went forth a command from before his face that they should be smitten with the sword and be removed from under heaven. So this is the angels explaining to Noah their marching orders. They were told before the flood concerning the rebellious angels and the giants. Wow, fascinating conversation, right? What a perspective of the angel being like, yeah, we got the orders to, uh, you know, bind these rebellious angels, put them in Tartarus, and and then uh, we went, took the giants and created war. This is what we see with Genesis 6, 4. Nephilim on the earth in those days and afterwards, when the sons of God had relations with others and men, they bore them children who became the mighty men of old and of renown. These were the giants. We also see it in 2 Peter 2, 4, validating what we just read from Jubilees 5. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them deep into Tartarus, placing them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. This is exactly what we read the angels were told to do concerning them. Here at the end of Julius 5, 8 through 15, he said to my spirit, he said, my spirit shall not always abide on man, for they also are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. He sent his sword into their midst. They should each slay his neighbor. And they began to slay each other till they all fell by the sword and were destroyed from the earth. And their fathers were witnesses of their destruction. That means the Fallen, the rebellious angels were still around. They had not been put into Tartarus yet until all their giant sons killed themselves in, in some sort of what seeming to be a civil war. We also see this in the book of Enoch validated as well. As far as the giants killed them off first and then the, the rebellious watchers were still around and then got locked up later. And I think it kind of culminated right before the flood, if you, to be honest, but it's a much Different video and a bigger study. Chapter 10, or verse 10, their fathers were witnesses of their destruction, and after this they were bound in the depths of the earth forever until the day of the great condemnation when judgment is executed on all those who have corrupted their way and their works before the Lord. He destroyed all from their places, and there was not left one of them whom he judged not according to all their wickedness. And he made for all his works a new and righteous nature, so they should not sin in their whole nature forever, but should be all righteous, each in his kind always. And the judgment of all is ordained and written on the heavenly tablets in righteousness, even the judgment of all who depart from the faith, which is ordained for them to walk in. And if they walk not therein, judgment is written down for every creature and for every kind. And guys, we actually see this also expounded in the canon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 13, and 14. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment along with every hidden thing, whether good or evil. This is expounded upon in Romans chapter 2, verse 7 through 16. So it goes on saying in verse 14, and there is nothing in heaven or on earth or in light or in darkness or in shoal or in the grave, excuse me, or in the depth or in the place of darkness, which is not judged. And all their judgments are ordained and written and engraved. Uh, by the way, the place of darkness, which is not judged, that's also referenced in First uh, Enoch chapter 22, where it talks about those two, the separate caverns and compartments where the righteous and the unrighteous are. And it talks about the righteous who are not judged in their lifetime, but will be judged when they're brought out at the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked and the great white throne judgment and stand before Yeshua. 
Verse 15, in regard to all, he will judge the great according to its greatness and the small according to his smallness and each according to his way. That's what I just referenced in Revelation 20, uh, 15 through 20, the great white throne judgment. 16 through 23, he says, and he is not one, Yahweh, through his son judging. You remember all judgment was given to the son by the father. He's not one who will regard the person of any, nor is he one who will receive gifts. I mean, he's not going to be bribed to judge unfairly. He's going to judge everyone according to their deeds. If he says that he will execute judgment on each, and if, if one gave everything that's on the earth, he will not regard the gifts or the person of any, meaning he's not going to show favoritism and take a bribe, nor accept anything in his hands, for he's a righteous judge. The children of Israel, it has been written and ordained, if they turn to him in righteousness, he will forgive all their transgressions and pardon all their sins. So he's telling you right here, even amidst all this huge, huge judgment talk about righteous angels and giants and the judgment of the flood and the end of days and resurrecting them, you know, the great right throne judgment, judging all things according to their deeds and works. He he then follows it all up with if any of the children of Israel in of the children of Israel, it's been written or ordained if they turn from to him in righteousness. So that means they have to repent of their unlawful behavior and start doing lawful behavior. He will forgive all their transgressions and pardon all those sins. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. But you can become a part of Israel. You can get grafted in. Get grafted. Somebody should do that. Uh, make a shirt out of that. Get grafted. Verse 18. It's written and ordained that he will show mercy to all who turn from all their guilt once each year. What is that? That's in his law, guys. You ready? When Aaron finished purifying the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he's to bring forward the live goat. Then he's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities and rebellious acts of the Israelites in regard to all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away in the wilderness by the hand of a man appointed for the task. Guys, the high priest, which we now have in Yeshua, which we're reading about here back in the day with Aaron on the earth, we now have a better high priest than Aaron. We have a high priest in a in a in an eternal order, the Melchizedek order, ministering in the eternal heavenly tabernacle above, a high priest who's more righteous than Aaron was ever. We have that guy going in and confessing. As we confess our sins to him, he takes our sins before the Father and makes atonement for us. This is why the Father can promise through his covenant, through his Torah, if everyone in Israel, that means you're under the authority of the high priest of Israel, it's written and ordained, I will show mercy to you if you turn from your guilt once each year. This is what the, the Day of Atonement was all about. It still is. Did you guys know that Yeshua performs the Day of Atonement in heaven above for you every year? Just throwing that out there for anyone who doesn't know that. Verse 19, and, and as for all those who were corrupted their ways and their thoughts before the flood, no man's person was accepted except that of Noah alone. For his person was accepted in behalf of his sons, whom God saved from the waters of the flood on his account. For his heart was righteous in all his ways, according as it was commanded regarding him, and he had not departed from anything that was ordained for him. The Lord said that he would destroy everything which was on the earth, both men and cattle and beasts and fowls of the air and that which moves on the earth. He commanded Noah to take him an ark that he might save himself from the waters of the flood. Noah made the ark in all respects as he commanded him in the 27th Jubilee of the years in the fifth week and the fifth year of the new moon on the first month. And he entered the sixth year thereof in the second month on the new moon in the second month till the 16th. And he entered and all that we brought to him into the ark, the Lord closed it from without on the 17th evening. How interesting. How interesting. Isn't that the 17th of the second month? Isn't that when Satan tempted Eve? It's interesting. Um, so then we, of course, have the angels. This is also parallel in Jubilees chapter 7. I think it's verse 8, or excuse me, verse... Uh, 
yeah, there's eight maybe, Jubilee chapter seven, or Genesis chapter seven, um, where it just basically says, you know, after knowing all the animals got in, the Lord shut it behind him. That's not literally Yahweh coming down to do it. The angels were sent to do it. I mean, these guys were interacting with angels all the time back then. It's called agency. Father sends his angels to help mankind who's inherited salvation. So this is why the command comes from the Lord. The angels follow through and carry it out. The, um, what's the word? The, um, the credit, if you will, goes back to the father who commanded the command. Jubilees 5, 24 through 32 goes on to finish and saying, The Lord opened seven floodgates of heaven and the mouths of the fountains of the great deep, seven mouths in number. We see this in Genesis 7, 11, guys. Same thing. It just tells you the actual number of the floodgates of heaven, of the firmament. In verse 25, the floodgates began to pour down water from the heaven 40 days and 40 nights, and the fountains of the deep also sent up waters until the whole earth was full of water. The waters increased upon the earth, 15 cubits did the waters rise above all the mountains, and the ark was lifted above the earth, and it moved upon the face of the waters. The water prevailed on the face of the earth five months, 150 days. The ark went and rested on the top of Lubar, one of the mountains of Ararat. And on the new moon in the fourth month of the mount, the fountains of the great deep were closed, and the floodgates of heaven were restrained. And on the moon, new moon of the seventh month, all the mouths of the abysses of the earth were opened, and the water began to descend into the deep below. And the, on the new moon of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains were seen. The new moon of the first month, the earth became visible, and the waters disappeared from above the earth in the fifth week of the seventh year thereof. And on the seventeenth day, in the second month, the earth was dry. There's that day again. It's crazy, huh? And on the twenty-seventh thereof, he opened the ark and sent forth from it beasts and cattle and birds and every moving thing. So that's that's exactly what we see, guys, in Genesis, Genesis chapter seven and eight. So just jumping into the first five. Thanks for your patience. It took a long time. I apologize, but that there's just so much there. And, and, and I shortened it just to like one or two references per every five or six verses. It's it's, there's so much there guys. This, this book will greatly expand your understanding of the scriptures. When you go back to read Genesis through Deuteronomy and you have Jubilees in your mind, you'll be like, Oh, that's why they're doing that. We haven't even gotten to the part where Jubilees make sense of some of the feasts that are not explained to us in Leviticus through Deuteronomy. So, like, there's so much in this that, I mean, it's just, hopefully this is a blessing to you guys. I appreciate everyone being here. If you have any questions, put them in all capitalization. Uh, that way I can see your question easily because I'm trying to scroll through the chat briefly real quick to see. I saw some questions earlier, but they're already gone, so I need you to repost them if you're still here. And then I can see your questions. I really appreciate it. Make sure they're in all capitalization. All capitalization, guys, so I can see it. I'm scrolling quick through this, trying to look for... For your questions, um, also, if anyone is, uh, if anybody wants to call in, I'm going to put this. Oops, that's not it. I'm going to put it on the screen right now. Okay, Caitlin Aguanaga, where to go? Caitlin Aguanaga is asking, can you actually do Second Samuel 7, 13 to 15? Let's go check it out real quick. Okay. On screen. All right. As always, um, Caitlin, as always, we want to look at the context of what's going on. We don't want to just pull a couple of verses usually. 
from something. We want to kind of look at what the, what's happening with the story. With the, Obviously, this is going to be during the days of David uh, and some of the prophecies surrounding him. So let's look at it real quick. Um, I'm going to start in... Okay, so this is Nathan. This is going to be Nathan talking, uh, getting a word from the Lord. And he replied to David. Okay, so it goes on down. It says, uh, let's start here in verse 8. Now then, you are to tell my servant David, this is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture, from the following the flock, to be ruler over my people of Israel. I've been with you for wherever you have gone. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make you a name like the greatest in the land. That means an authority. We don't worship the name of David. He's enough. That's where that I emphatically try to remind people Hebrew and Greek. The word name references authority. It doesn't just mean your the, the phonetic sound of their name. It's the greatness of their authority. Right. Verse 10, he says, I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in a place of their own and be disturbed no more. That's in the kingdom come. No longer will the sons of wickedness oppress them as they did at the beginning. That's in the kingdom come and have done since the day I appointed judges over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies in the kingdom come. The Lord declares to you that he himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are fulfilled and, you're re- and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. He will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Well, we see that happen with Solomon. I'm guessing you want to know if this is maybe a, a inference to a messianic prophecy. Verse, th- verse 13 says, he will build a house for my name. That's for the authority of Yahweh. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will build his father. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Okay, well, this just to let just in case you're inference, I, I can only um, go off of the limited words in your in your question. But honestly, I've seen a lot of people ask this before: Is this a messianic prophecy? Yeshua did not go wrong. Yeshua did not uh, do wrong. He was perfect. He did not deserve the rod of discipline from the Father or the blows of the sons of men. Um, so this is I would have a hard time thinking this is talking about Yeshua. But the idea of I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Well, yes. Just like David was promised, also Solomon was promised that the throne of the Messiah would be established through their lineage to their kingdom forever. It just has to be fulfilled in the future. But specifically, though, the idea here is that I I don't know if this is talking about the Messiah. I would think this is talking about uh, Solomon more because Messiah is not going to not going to do wrong. Verse fifteen. But my loving devotion will never be removed from him as I removed from Saul when I moved out of when whom I moved out of your way. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Yes. So this is fulfilled in the Messiah, but we know that this right here. Um, I will raise up your descendant after you. That Solomon, Solomon did do wrong and did deserve the blows. Right. He did get. He he did get. We don't know all the entirety of the end of Solomon's life, but he definitely did wrong and deserved punishment. So it's interesting to see. Um, this is definitely not talking about Yeshua, but there's a mixture of things. Just like with a lot of prophecy, you got the father through the prophet expressing something to David, saying, look, I'm going to establish a throne of kingdom and peace forever. And that only happens to the fulfillment of Yeshua that comes later. But in, this, in, in the here and now, he's connecting the promise to David with, oh, by the way, I'm going to one of your descendants after you will, will take over the kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But there's a lot going on in between the declaration of the promise with Solomon to the fulfillment of it with Yeshua and the kingdom come. So hopefully that's a good explanation for you. A good little breakdown um, in case you're interested. Particle son, yes, as far as, as far as I understand, 
Uh, silver trumpets for just for the priests. That's uh, as far as new moon celebrations. My wife and I do keep those, um, you know, every every 91 days as a part of as expounded upon in Jubilee chapter six. Uh, but as but we don't blow trump. We're not a priesthood, so we don't we don't blow any trumpets. Emissary Elohim is asking where your contextual Bible have restored names. Brother, I, I love you and I appreciate you. I've seen you in the comments earlier. And I just want to say we don't we don't mess with sacred name stuff here. Um, just to the point of we want to reach people with the truth. Okay. So a lot of people are they get really, really passionate about going to the Hebrew and and what they think is the proper enunciation or pronunciation of the Hebrew, uh, even from the Paleo Hebrew. I've studied it. And I I made a decision with this ministry that we're not going to focus on that type of thing because it brings so much division amongst the average believer that we're trying to reach still stuck in the mainstream churches. Who's not getting any of this breakdown, not getting any of the stuff that you've seen tonight for the last two hours. And I would hate for them to get introduced to this to only not recognize any of the things I'm trying to say. So that's why you hear me often interchange the idea of Yeshua with Jesus or use the word Christ, or, you know, I don't stress about the G-O-D word. I, I just, I always also say the creator, the almighty and Yahweh. I, I, I consciously interchange these terms because ultimately I, we have to remember these are terms. The father is the one who did Genesis 11. He's the one who gave the nations different languages and he knows the people will worship him from the different languages from the different nations, which is why we have the promise that that and the future will be restored to the land and restored to a people of one, one lip and one speech. So while I do have much respect for the paleo Hebrew and for the idea of the father declaring his actual enunciation of Yahweh or Yahuwah, or however you want to say it in the dialect that you think is correct. Same thing with Yeshua, Yehoshua, Yeshua. Like I also, I want to reach the people with the, the great truths that are also in the scriptures that they can relate to first. And we can get deeper into the more specifics later about, Oh, well, actually that's, you know, Jesus is a transliteration from the Latin, from the Greek to Latin to the, to the English. And that's, you know, I just don't want to shy people away. So no, I'm not going to have restored names or any version of what I've heard that terminology used as in the sacred name community. I've, I'm not going to use any of that in the contextual study guide because I want to reach all the people stuck in the pews in the mainstream churches. I don't want them to be scared away to think that this is something they can understand or it's some sect. So hopefully that's a decent answer for you, brother. Old paths Torah studies. Appreciate the compliment. Thank you, brother. Hopefully it's a blessing to you. <laughs> and we'll stop picking on the lunar Sabbath guys. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Philip Levy. I appreciate you, brother. Uh, Prodigal Son's asking about Aramaic Targums. Guys, just remember, I've tried to explain this before. Actually, I, I tried to go over this with my actual debate about the serpent seed as I, I tried to address some of the Targums where, where my brother was pulling some of his ideas. Um, guys, remember, just the, the word Targum just means translation. Guys, if, you, we, if we took that word literally from a scholastic viewpoint and I hope you guys can handle what I'm about to say. We don't know who wrote Genesis and Genesis could be called a Targum. We don't know who wrote it. So we, we speculate. We, we hope that Ezra 
That's the book that Ezra, one of the books Ezra restored. But when you compare it to something like Jubilees, which is much more detailed about the Torah, about creation, about the angelic interaction and everything involved, it's interesting that Judaism accepts Genesis but rejects Jubilees. So the group of religious zealots that rejected the Messiah, who was trying to tell them to keep the true words of the law and the prophets, they gladly accept Genesis, but they reject Jubilees. You're like, whoa, that's weird. Because ultimately, a Targum is just a, a, a translation, just like most of the books in the scripture are translation. Some of the Targums will have very specific um, insertions of thoughts to add to the translation, just like we already see happening. Like, I mean, the book of Hebrews has lots of inserted translated words to try to make sense of it in English, but that still has an assumption involved in it that the translator understands the context so that he can insert the right word to bring about the right conclusion. It doesn't always work very well. This mm -hmm. is why we always talk about context. And we always talk about researching the history. You know, what's the definition of the word? What read the rest of the chapter, read the surrounding passage, compare it with the same topic mentioned in another chapter and how it's described there. You know, who's the audience? Who's the author? How does it, all these kinds of look for translator insertions in the actual text? Excuse me, guys. Uh, for some reason, water is making me hiccup tonight. Um, so all these things that, that we try to teach with our contextual ideas of 10 easy ways to find context. That's, that's what I would encourage also in taking, uh, you know, a grain of sand, um, to excuse me, a grain of salt to uh, to the Targums. Uh, Joe Datuno, I appreciate you, brother. I think I'm saying that right. Joe, no, that's uh, that's the first resurrection. Go check out Kingdom of Context New Beginners playlist. So my Kingdom of Context channel, New Beginners Playlist. One of the first few videos I did is on the first resurrection. There's a two-part there. Lots in scripture. I go over in great depth the timing of the first resurrection. There's no secret pre-rapture of believers. It all happens at the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet happens on the day of the Lord. I go over all the scriptures there, and it's it's the thing that actually kicks off the day of the Lord. So there's, there's no secret rapture. But that word harpazo is used of the event that happens on the day of the Lord. It's just been misinterpreted by... Uh, different denominations over time. Chico1985 is asking, why don't people marry or give in marriage in the resurrection? Because as, as he explains, you're like, you're made like the angels, you're made immortal. There's no reason for you to make, um, procreate anymore to propagate mankind because you're now immortal. So you don't need to do that. You don't need to worry about anyone carrying on your, your seed or your family name or anything like that. And also there's something called the, the number of man that's mentioned in, uh, I believe it's the book of Baruch, the book of Enoch, and also the, um, it's, it's alluded to in a, in a certain way in Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11. And it's basically that there's only a, a certain number of mankind that Yahweh wants to have birthed. And that, of course, is going to be finished at the culmination of the return of uh, at the end of the millennial reign. But basically once you get your resurrection body you're you're not you'll be like the angels right it's not appointed for you for to have wives just like it's not appointed to them because they're immortal and there's no need for them to procreate we don't we don't view the the restored names as a camel brother that's all about perspective that's why we don't mess with that topic for that reason right there um joe datuno Joe that, you know, Joe that, you know, okay. Joe that, you know, okay. 
I think I got it now. Uh, James Carter, whose question? Is there a question that I missed? Oh, okay. Joe, Joe that, you know, you're asking, okay. I totally didn't understand that question. Thanks James Carter for the clarification. Uh, no, the, the sinful that in the Matthew 13 reference of those who are gathered to be burned, that happens that that's the evil. That's the wicked. That's those that, that you know, the really 16, the three demonic things that are like frogs that go out to gather the armies of the nation that draw them under the authority of the beast, the false prophet, they gather them to fight the Lord at his coming. That is the wicked that are gathered to be burned like chaff because the father through his son and the angels comes down with fire to burn the wicked that try to attack him at his coming. Um, but that's, that's why the wheats are pulled up into the barn, Matthew 13, 30, but the wicked are gathered in bundles to be burned, which is why they're gathered together in the Valley of Armageddon. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you, brother. But the righteous are the wheat that's taken in the barn. That's the first resurrection event that I was mentioning. That happens at the actual last trumpet on the day of the Lord. All right, guys, scrolling through, scrolling through, seeing any new questions. Yeah, and and uh, James, you know, I actually break this down in great detail. I've actually broken this down on quite a few videos. Um, I know everybody hasn't seen every video put out, but if you, uh, let me see here. Yeah, go check out the beginner's playlist. It's it's four videos. It's, it's more than four videos, but the first four videos in that playlist, I go over the gospel of the kingdom. Um, please forgive the poor production quality. It was my very first few videos, um, but I go over the gospel of the kingdom parts one and two in the first resurrection part one and two. And I cover these concepts and the timing of these concepts about, you know, the, the Matthew 13 breakdown. Um, I also go over this in with, with an actual timeline. I go over this in great depth. If you go also to my kingdom of context channel and, and uh, search for the video, new heaven, a new earth. It's under my morning cup of context playlist. I do an actual full on breakdown of the timing of these events that happen on the day of the Lord leading into the, in the millennial reign. And uh, I, I even do it with some graphics, you know, in that, that video. So hopefully that'll be a help for you as well. <laughs> we, we appreciate and love you, Miss Marsha. <laughs> I'm so, we're so happy that, um, for all your positive feedback that, uh, that our videos have blessed you and your family. So I really appreciate you. Yeah. Guys, y'all are awesome. I appreciate everyone staying up late with me tonight. I had some uh, lighthouse meetings earlier. I couldn't get to the to the broadcast until now, but you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. I got a, a weird hurt foot going on. I got to go check it out, see what's happening. I'm going to have to end the video broadcast for tonight, but thank you everyone for being here. And uh, if you like, share, and subscribe. If you like this video, this information, share it with other people. That's how we grow. It's how we get out there. Um, and uh, you guys are awesome. If you like what we do, you can check out ways in the video description to support us. And other than that, we love you, appreciate you. We hope to see you again um, on the next Kingdom Cast. And I'm going to take us out. See you guys later.